This is Audible. Recorded books in RB Digital present Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. Narrated by Corey Allen and Cara Patterson. The Finkelstein Five. Fela, the headless girl, walked toward a manual. Her neck jagged with red savagery. She was silent, but he could feel her waiting for him to do something, anything. Then his phone rang, and he woke up. He took a deep breath and set the blackness in his voice down to one point five on a ten-point scale. Hi there. How are you doing today? Yes. Yes, I did recently inquire about the status of my application. Well, all right. Okay, great to hear. I'll be there. Have a spectacular day. Emmanuel rolled out of bed and brushed his teeth. The house was quiet. His parents had already left for work. That morning, like every morning, the first decision he made regarded his blackness. His skin was a deep, constant brown. In public, when people could actually see him, it was impossible to get his blackness down to anywhere near a 1.5. If he wore a tie, wing-tipped shoes, smiled constantly, used his indoor voice, and kept his hands strapped and calm at his sides, he could get his blackness as low as 4.0. Though Emmanuel was happy about scoring the interview, he also felt guilty about feeling happy about anything. Most people he knew were still mourning the Finkelstein verdict. After twenty-eight minutes of deliberation, a jury of his peers had acquitted George Wilson Dunn of any wrongdoing whatsoever. He had been indicted for allegedly using a chainsaw to hack off the heads of five black children outside the Finkelstein Library in Valley Ridge, South Carolina. The court had ruled that because the children were basically loitering and not actually inside the library reading, as one might expect of productive members of society. It was reasonable that Dunn had felt threatened by these five black young people, and thus he was well within his rights when he protected himself, his library loan DVDs, and his children by going into the back of his Ford F-150 and retrieving his Hartec Pro 18-inch 48cc chainsaw. The case had seized the country by the ear and heart, and was still mostly the only thing anyone was talking about. Finkelstein became the news cycle. On one side of the broadcast world, anchors openly wept for the children, who were saints in their eyes. On the opposite side were personalities like Brent Kogan, the ever-gruff and opinionated host of What's the Big Deal, who had said during an online panel discussion, yes, yes, they were kids, but also, fuck niggers. Most news outlets fell somewhere in between. On verdict day, Emmanuel's family and friends of many different races and backgrounds had gathered together and watched a television tuned to a station that had sympathized with the children, who were popularly known as the Finkelstein Five. Pizza and drinks were served. When the ruling was announced, Emmanuel felt a clicking and grinding in his chest. It burned. His mother known to be one of the liveliest and happiest women in the neighborhood, threw a plastic cup filled with coke across the room. 
when the plastic fell and the soda splattered. The people stared at Emmanuel's mother. Seeing Miss John that way meant it was real. They'd lost. Emmanuel's father walked away from the group wiping his eyes, and Emmanuel felt the grinding in his chest settle to a cold nothingness. On the ride home, his father cursed. His mother punched honks out of the steering wheel. Emmanuel breathed in and watched his hands appear, then disappear, then appear, then disappear as they rode past streetlights. He let the nothing he was feeling wash over him in one cold wave after another. But now that he'd been called in for an interview with Stitches, a store self-described as an innovator with a classic sensibility that specialized in vintage sweaters, Emmanuel had something to think about besides the bodies of those kids, severed at the neck, growing damp and thick, pulsing, shooting blood. Instead, he thought about what to wear. In a vague move of solidarity, Emmanuel climbed into the loose-fitting cargoes he'd worn on a camping trip. Then he stepped into his patent leather space jams with the laces still clean and taut as they weaved up all across the black tongue. Next, he pulled out a long-ago abandoned black hoodie and dove into its tunnel. As a final act of solidarity, Emmanuel put on a gray snapback cap a hat similar to the ones two of the Finkelstein Five had been wearing the day they were murdered, a fact George Wilson Dunn's defense had stressed throughout the proceedings. Emmanuel stepped outside into the world, his blackness at a solid 7.6. He felt like Evil Knievel at the top of a ramp. At the mall, he'd looked for something to wear to the interview, something to bring him down to at least a 4.2. He pulled the brim of his hat forward, and down to shade his eyes. He walked up a hill toward Canfield Road, where he'd catch a bus. He listened to the gravel scraping under his sneakers. It had been a very long time since he'd had his blackness even close to a 7.0. I want you safe. You gotta know how to move, his father had said to him at a very young age. Emmanuel started learning the basics of his blackness before he knew how to do long division. Smiling when angry, whispering when he wanted to yell. Back when he was in middle school, after a trip to the zoo, where he'd been accused of stealing a stuffed panda from the gift shop, Emmanuel had burned his last pair of baggy jeans in his driveway. He'd watched the denim curl in ash in front of him with unblinking eyes. When his father came outside... Emmanuel imagined he'd get a good talking to. Instead, his father stood quietly beside him. This is an important thing to learn, his father had said. Together they watched the fire until it ate itself dead. It was crowded at the bus stop. He felt eyes shifting toward him, while pocketbooks shifted away. Emmanuel thought of George Wilson Dunn. He imagined the middle-aged man standing there in front of him, smiling, a chainsaw growling in his hands. He decided to try something dangerous. He turned his hat backward, so the shadow of the brim draped his neck. He felt his blackness leap and throb to an 8.0. The people grew quiet. They tried to look super friendly, 
but also distant. As if he were a tiger or an elephant, they were watching beneath a big tent. A path through the mass opened up for Emmanuel. Soon, he was standing near the bench. A young woman with long brown hair and a guy wearing sunglasses above the brim of his hat both remembered they had to be somewhere else. Immediately. An older woman remained sitting, and Emmanuel took the newly available seat beside her. The woman glanced toward Emmanuel as he sat. She smiled faintly. Her look of general disinterest made his heart sing. He turned his hat forward and felt his blackness ease back to a still very serious 7.6. A minute later the brown-haired woman returned and sat beside him. She smiled like someone had told her that if she stopped smiling her frantic, wide-eyed smile, Emmanuel would blow her brains out. The fact is, George Wilson Dunn is an American. Americans have the right to protect themselves, the defense attorney says in a singing, charming voice. Do you have children? Do you have anyone you love? The prosecution has tried to beat you over the head with scary words like law and murder and sociopath. The defense attorney's index and middle fingers claw the air repeatedly to indicate quotations. I'm here to tell you that this case isn't about any of those things. It's about an American man's right to love and protect his own life and the life of his beautiful baby girl and his handsome young son. So, I ask you, what do you love more, the supposed law or your children? I object, says the prosecuting attorney. I'll allow it. Overruled, replies the judge, as she dabs the now wet corners of her eyes. Please continue, Counselor. Thank you, Your Honor. I don't know about you all but I love my children more than I love the law. And I love America more than I love my children. That's what this case is about. Love with a capital L. And America. That is what I am defending here today. My client, Mr. George Dunn, believed he was in danger. And you know what? If you believe something, anything, then that's what matters most. Believing. In America, we have the freedom to believe. America, our beautiful sovereign state. Don't kill that here today. The bus was pulling in. Emmanuel noticed a figure running toward the stop. It was Boogie, one of his best friends from back in grade school. In Miss Fold's fourth grade class, Emmanuel would peek over at Boogie's tests during their history exams and then angle his papers so Boogie could see his answers during math tests. In all the years he'd known Boogie, he'd never known him to dress in anything but two large T-shirts and baggy sweats. By the time they were in high school, Emmanuel had learned to control his blackness. Boogie had not. Emmanuel had quietly distanced himself from Boogie, who'd become known for fighting with other students and teachers. By now he'd mostly forgotten about him, but when Emmanuel did think of Boogie, it was with pity for him and his static personhood. Boogie was always himself. Today, though, Boogie ran in black slacks, shining black dress shoes, a white button-up shirt, 
and a slim red tie. His dress combined with his sandy skin squeezed his blackness down to a 2.9. Manny! Boogie called as the bus pulled to a stop. What's good, bro? Emmanuel replied. In the past, Emmanuel had dialed his blackness up whenever he was around Boogie. Today, he didn't have to. People shuffled past them onto the bus. Emmanuel and Boogie clapped palms and held the grip so that, with their hands between them, their chests came together, and when they took their hands back, their fingers snapped against their palms. Emmanuel said, What you up to lately? What's new? A lot, man. A lot. I've been waking up. Emmanuel got on the bus, paid his two dollars and fifty cents, then found a seat near the back. Boogie took the empty seat beside him. Yeah? Yeah, man. I've been working lately. I'm trying to get a lot of us together, man. We need to unify. Word, Emmanuel replied absently. I'm serious, bro. We need to move together. We got to now. You've seen it. You know they don't give a fuck about us now. They showed it. Emmanuel nodded. We all need to unify. We need to wake the fuck up. I've been naming. I'm getting a team together. You trying to ride or what? Emmanuel scanned the area around him to make sure no one had heard. It didn't seem like anyone had. But still, he regretted his proximity to Boogie. You're not really doing that naming stuff. Emmanuel watched the smile on Boogie's face melt. Emmanuel made sure his face didn't do anything at all. Of course I am. Boogie unbuttoned the left cuff of his shirt and pulled the sleeve up. Along Boogie's inner forearm were three different marks. Each of them was a very distinct five, carved and scarred into his skin. After it was clear Emmanuel had seen, Boogie smoothed his sleeve back down over his arm, but did not button the cuff. He continued in a low voice. You know what my uncle said to me the other day? Emmanuel waited. He said that when you're on the bus and a tired man is kind of leaning over beside you, using your shoulder like a pillow, people tell you to wake him up. They'll try to sell it to you that the man needs to wake up and find some other place to rest because you ain't a goddamn mattress. Emmanuel made a sound to show he was following. But if he's sleeping on his own, not bothering you, it's supposed to be different. And if that sleeping man gets ran upon by someone that wants to take advantage of him because he's asleep, because he's so tired, everybody tries to tell you we're supposed to be like, that's not my problem. That don't got a thing to do with me. As he gets his pockets all the way ran through. Or worse. That man sleeping on the bus, he's your brother. That's what my uncle's saying. You need to protect him. Yeah, you might need to wake him up. But while he's asleep, he's your responsibility. Your brother. Even if you ain't met him a day in your life, is your business. Feel me? Emmanuel made another confirmatory sound. Two days after the ruling, the first report had come through. 
An elderly white couple, both in their sixties, had had their brains smashed in by a group armed with bricks and rusty metal pipes. Witnesses said the murderers had been dressed in very fancy clothes, bow ties and summer hats, cufflinks and high heels. Throughout the double murder, the group slash gang had chanted, Imboya! Imboya! Tyler Kenneth Imboya! The name of the eldest boy killed at Finkelstein. The next day a similar story broke. Three white schoolgirls had been killed with ice picks. A black man and black woman had poked holes through the girls' skulls like they were mining for diamonds. They chanted, Akua Harris, Akua Harris, Akua Harris, all through the murder, according to reports. Again, the killers had been described as quite fashionable, given the circumstances. In both cases, the killers had been caught immediately following the act. The couple that killed the schoolgirls had carved the number five into their own skins just before the attack. Several more cases of beatings and killings followed the first two. Each time the culprit screamed the name of one of the Finkelstein Five. The Namers became the latest terrorists on the news. Most of the perpetrators were killed by police officers before they could be brought in for questioning. Those who were detained spoke only the name of the child they'd used as a mantra to their violence. None seemed interested in defense. By far the most famous of the namers was Mary Mistress Redding. The story was Mistress Redding had been detained wearing a single blood-stained white silk glove over her left hand, once sparkling white shoes with four-inch heels, and an A-line dress that was such a hard rusty red that officers couldn't believe it had originally been a perfect white. For hours, Redding answered all of the questions with a single name. Why did you do it? J.D. Haroy. He was just a child. How could you? J.D. Haroy. Who are you working with? Who is your leader? J.D. Haroy. Do you feel any remorse for what you've done? J.D. Haroy. What is it you people want? J.D. Haroy. Redding had been caught with a group that had killed a single teenage boy. But there was a train of ten fives carved into her back that trailed down to her left thigh, including one that was dripping and fresh when she was caught. According to reports, several hours into an advanced interrogation session, a single sentence had escaped Mistress Redding. If I had words left in me, I would not be here. Emmanuel remembered how the news had reported the bloody phenomenon. Breaking this evening, said one anchor, yet another innocent child was mercilessly beaten by a gang of thugs, all of whom seem again to be descendants of the African diaspora. What do you think of this, Holly? Well, many people in the streets are saying, and I quote, I told you they don't know how to act. We told you. Beyond that, all I can say is this violence is terrible. The co-anchor shook her head, disgusted. The names of each of the Finkelstein Five had become curses. When no one was around, Emmanuel liked to say the names to himself. Tyler, Mboya, Fela, St. John, Akua Harris, Marcus Harris, J.D. Haroy.
This is just the beginning, Boogie said. He pulled a small box cutter out of his pocket. Emmanuel almost made a sound, but Boogie said, Don't worry, I'm not going to use it. Not here. I haven't gone all the way. Yet. Emmanuel watched Boogie as he rolled up his sleeve for the second time, and with a practiced precision, used five quick slashes to cut a small five into his left arm. The skin split into a thin red that gathered, then rolled down the side of his arm. Boogie reached over Emmanuel and pulled the yellow cord. There was a bing sound, and the stop-requested sign went bright. The bus slowed in front of Market Plaza. I'm going to hit you up later, Manny. We're going to need you. Got it. I have the same number, Emmanuel said as the bus stopped. Boogie walked to the bus's rear door. He turned, smiled at Emmanuel, then at the top of his lungs screamed, J.D. Haroy! The name was still echoing off the windows when Boogie took his fist and crashed it against a white woman's jaw. She didn't make a sound. She slumped over in her seat. Boogie pulled his fist back again and punched the woman in the face a second time. A third. It sounded like hammering a nail into soft wood. Help! Somebody sitting near the woman screamed. Fuck you, asshole! Another yelled as Boogie jumped out the bus's back door and sprinted away. No one followed him. Emmanuel pulled his cell phone out of his pocket and dialed 911. As he called, he stepped toward the crowd that had formed around the woman. Her nose was busted and bleeding. The blood rolled out in a steady leak and had bubbles in it. Again, Emmanuel felt a ticking and grinding in his chest. He gritted his teeth and closed his eyes. He imagined the color sky blue. Hi, I'm on a bus and this lady is hurt. Yeah, we're on Myrtle, right by Market Plaza. Yeah. She's hurt pretty bad. He could feel fear swelling toward him. He'd been next to Boogie, and at a 7.6. The bus sat on the roadside, and a small group of passengers made a wall around the woman. The other passengers took turns shooting hard stares at Emmanuel. He imagined the police officers blasting through the bus doors, and the many fingers that would immediately point in his direction. He imagined the bullet that would not take even a second to find his brain. He'd never stolen a thing in his life. He didn't even particularly like pandas. He got off the bus ignoring the murmurs and trying hard not to look at the woman with the broken face. He walked a few blocks to a nearby bus stop. The mall was as it always was. Parents ran from store to store. Their children struggled to keep pace. Three security guards tailed Emmanuel from the moment he stepped into the mall. Whenever he slowed or stopped, the guards jumped into conversation or pretended to listen to important information via their two-way radios. Normally, when Emmanuel went to the mall, he wore blue jeans that weren't too baggy or tight and a nice collared shirt. He smiled ear to ear and walked very slowly. 
only eyeing any one thing in any store for a maximum of twelve seconds. Emmanuel's usual mall blackness was a smooth 5.0. Usually only one security guard followed him. He went into a store named Rogers. He chose an eggshell blue, button-up, then handed the shirt to a cashier. The cashier took his card and ran it through the machine. Then she folded his shirt and tucked it into a plastic bag. I need a receipt, Emmanuel said, then thanked her as she handed him the flimsy white paper. He dropped it into the bag with his shirt. When he approached the store's entrance-slash-exit, he felt a tug on his wrist. He turned to see a tall man with a store name tag pinned to his shirt. Did you purchase that shirt, sir? The man's voice was condescending and sharp, like a cruel teacher's or a villain's from a children's television show. Immediately Emmanuel felt habit telling him to be precisely gentle, to smile, and not to yell, no matter what. He pushed habit away as he snatched his hand back from the man. Yeah, actually, I did, Emmanuel said in a voice loud enough to make shoppers turn and stare. Do you have a receipt for that purchase that you actually made? Yes, I do. Can I please see this receipt that you actually have for that purchase you actually made? Well, I can show it to you, Emmanuel began. Or maybe ask the cashier who rang me up two seconds ago. He jabbed a finger in the direction of the register. He felt his blackness creeping up toward 8.1. He was angry and alive and free. When the cashier looked up and saw what was happening, she raised a hand and waved with her fingers. Hmm. So, do you have a receipt or not? Emmanuel stared at the man. Then he handed him the receipt. Emmanuel had had this conversation a number of times before. Not so much since he'd really learned to lock down to sub-6.0 levels. Can't be too careful, the man said, and handed the receipt back. Emmanuel knew better than to wait for an apology. He turned and left the store and felt himself slide back down to a 7.6 in the eyes of the mall-goers around him. As Emmanuel made his way back to the bus stop, a different pair of security guards followed closely behind him but far enough away to make it seem like they were just walking in the same direction he was. Emmanuel stopped to tie his shoe, and one of the security guards jumped behind a decorative potted plant while the other stared off into the sky, whistling. They followed him to the south exit bus stop, then turned back into the mall once he was seated beneath the overhang. Emmanuel found a window seat. No one sat next to him. The bus had just started moving when his phone buzzed. He recognized the number as the same one that had called him that morning. He pushed the green dot on the screen, immediately setting his voice to a 1.5. Hello? You've reached Emmanuel. Hey there, son. I called this morning about an interview. We thought about lining up for you. The man's voice was full and husky. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Tomorrow at eleven, correct? Well, the thing is, 
and I really hate to be this guy, but I just thought I might save you some time. It's Emmanuel John, right? Yes, that's correct. Well, Emmanuel, thing is, and shit, I didn't think things all the way through, but I think we might have that position filled already. Pardon? Well, thing is, we have this guy Jamal here already, and then there's also Ty, who's half Egyptian. So, I mean, it'd be overkill. We aren't an urban brand. You know what I mean? So I thought it'd... Emmanuel ended the call and tried very hard to breathe. Again, his phone buzzed. He eyed the screen hard. It was a message from Boogie. The Park, 10.45. Mr. Dunn, the defense attorney sashays to the bench. What were you doing on the night in question before you encountered the five people you say attacked you? Well, George Wilson Dunn looks at his attorney, then at the jury. I was with my children at the library, both of them, Tiffany and Rodman. I'm a single father. A single father out with his children at the library. So, what happened before you went outside? The defense attorney looks curious, as if this were all news to him. Thing is, being a father is the most important thing in the world to me. And being a father of two kids like Tiffany and Rodman, you just never know what you're going to get. That night, as we are looking around the movie section for something to watch that weekend, Tiffany out and says she's not going to school anymore because she's fat and ugly, and all of a sudden I've got this crisis on my hands. And she's the older one, usually gives me less trouble. But that's being a parent. No prep. She's never said anything like this before, and all of a sudden you have to fix it, or else she'll become some kind of bum or a crack whore. This is irrelevant, Your Honor, the prosecuting attorney says from her chair. I'll allow it, but get on with your story, Mr. Dunn. This is the story, Dunn says. So, out of nowhere, I gotta figure out something to say to my only daughter to put her back on track. And all the while, my only boy, he's quiet and not saying a word this whole time. And that has me almost more worried than anything else. I love the kid, but he's a crazy one. So, as we're getting ready to leave the library, I tell Tiffany how she's beautiful and how Daddy loves her and how that will never change. And you know what she says? She says, Okay. Like it's all fixed. Like she just wanted me to say that one thing. And I can finally breathe. And then the other one, Rodman, pushes over a cart that crashes into a shelf and makes about a hundred DVDs crash down to the floor. But that's being apparent, you know. Anyway, that's what happened before I got outside. All right. And when you were outside, 
the defense asks with a warm smile. When I got outside, I was attacked, and I protected myself and both my kids. And on this night in question, were your actions motivated by the love you feel for your children and your God-given right to protect yourself and them? They were. No further questions, Mr. Dunn. Emmanuel greeted his parents with a smile when they got home. They ate dinner together as a family, though Emmanuel hardly spoke a word. After they were finished, Emmanuel's father told him he was proud of him no matter what happened at the interview, and that he should wear a tie and try to speak slowly. You'll do great, he said. When his parents were asleep, Emmanuel slipped into the shower. He got out, combed his hair, then put on fresh underwear and socks. He pulled and zipped himself into ironed, tan slacks. He looped a brown leather belt around his waist. Then he put on a white undershirt and the eggshell blue button-up. He tied the laces of his wing-tipped dress shoes tightly. Emmanuel moved slowly out of his room and out of the house. He closed the side door as quietly as he could manage and was in the garage. There was an aluminum bat leaning against a wall with peeling paint. He stared at the bat. The grinding, clicking heat in his chest hadn't stopped churning since he'd gotten off the bus. It made him feel like the bat would cure everything if he could just grab it and bring it with him to the park. Emmanuel walked toward the bat, then thought better of it. He left his home empty-handed and headed toward Marshall Park. Mr. Dunn, please recount the night of July the 13th. George Dunn sits on the stand looking sweaty and apologetic. Apologetic in an I sure am sorry acting well within my rights caused all this gosh-darn-hoopla kind of way. Well, I was with my two kids, Tiffany and Rodman, when I saw a gang laughing and doing God knows what outside the library. Did you at any point feel threatened, Mr. Dunn? Well, I didn't at first— but then I realized all five of them were wearing black, like they were about to commit a robbery. Are you suggesting that it was these young people's clothes that made them a threat to you and your family? The prosecution has been waiting for this moment for weeks. No. No, of course not. It was when one of them, the tall one, started yelling stuff at me. I was afraid for my children. Tiffany and Rodman. That's all I was thinking. Tiffany, Rodman. I had to protect them. Several members of the jury nod thoughtfully. And what did Mr. Haroy yell at you? I think he wanted my money. Or my car. He said, gimme, and then something else. So... At what point did you feel your life was threatened? I wasn't about to wait until I saw my life flashing before my eyes, or Tiffany's, or Rodman's. I had to act. 
I did what I did for them. And what did you do? I went and got my saw. Dunn's eyes glow. I did what I had to do. And you know what? I loved protecting my kids. The jury stares, attentive, almost breathless, engaged and excited. The night was cool. Under an unspectacular sky, Emmanuel felt the story of the Finkelstein Five on his fingers and in his chest and in each of his breaths. He imagined George Wilson Dunn walking free down the courtroom steps as cameras flashed. Emmanuel turned around and went back to his garage where the bat was waiting for him. It was from his Little League days. He'd played second base. The bat was too big for him then, too heavy. Now it was just right. He took it and walked to the park. I'm awake now. Boogie had said something like that while they were on the bus. Looking like a young Hank Aaron, bro, Boogie said as Emmanuel approached. With Boogie was a middle school biology teacher Emmanuel remembered as Mr. Coder, as well as a girl named Tisha, Boogie's girlfriend, and another tiny man with glasses. Mr. Coder and the tiny man each wore three-piece suits, navy blue and coal black, respectively. Their eyes looked cold and dead. Tisha wore a flowing yellow dress with a festive hat that had a kind of veil that swooped across the front of it. On her left hand was an elegant white glove. Boogie was wearing the same white shirt and slim red tie he'd had on that morning. Gang. That was the word they'd use. My bro Manny has the right idea, Boogie said after a quick exchanging of names. Today, we're going all the way. I hope you know how to swing that thing. Boogie crouched into a stance and rocked an imaginary bat back and forth like Ken Griffey Jr. Then he took a hard step into an invisible fastball that he crushed into the cheap seats. Emmanuel's body tensed. Boogie laughed and ran around a tiny diamond. All the way, he said as he rounded the bases. So, you grabbed your chainsaw. What happens next? The tall one. He was so tall he must have been a basketball player or something. He says he's not scared of no hedge cutter. And he comes charging at me. So an unarmed J.D. Haroy came charging at you while you were holding a chainsaw, totally unprovoked. Totally. What happened next? Vroom! I had my young children, Tiffany and Rodman, behind me so I could vroom, vroom, protect them. What exactly does that mean? that I revved my saw and got to cutting. You got to cutting. Please, Mr. Dunn, please be specific. Vroom! I cut that basketball player's head clean vroom off. 
And then what? Then three more of them rushed me. They tried to jump me. And as these children were running toward you, what did you do? Did you ever think to run? Get into your truck and go? Well, I checked to see if Tiffany and Rodman were safe, and then I went to make sure they stayed safe. I was too worried about my kids to think about running. And how did you make sure they stayed safe, Mr. Dunn? I got to cutting. George Dunn pantomimes pulling the ripcord of a chainsaw several times. You mutilated five children. I protected my children. Emmanuel was surprised to see he was the only one of the group who carried a weapon. He felt a strange pride. So, where are we getting them? Mr. Coder asked. Right here. We'll wait in Tisha's car for a couple to come around trying to use their car as a love box. This was the spot for that, Boogie said. He pinched Tisha's side. I want to know who we're naming, Tisha said, swatting Boogie's hand away playfully. That matters, she finished, her voice dropping to seriousness. And what about Fela St. John? The prosecution asks finally. Which one is that? George Dunn replies quickly. The prosecuting attorney smiles. Her eyes are bright and unflinching. The seven-year-old girl. The cousin of Akua and Marcus Harris. What about the seven-year-old girl you decapitated with a chainsaw? She looked a lot older than seven to me, Dunn replies. Of course. How old did you think she was as you pulled a blade through her neck? Maybe thirteen, or even fourteen. Maybe thirteen or fourteen. And you approached her. You ran after her and murdered her. The reports show you killed her last and that she was found yards from the rest. Did you have to chase her? How fast was she? She didn't run anywhere. Tried to attack me. Same as the rest of them. Fela St. John. The seven-year-old girl tried to attack you, a grown man who she had just watched murder some of her friends and family. And somehow her body was found in a completely different area. Do you think that adds up? Does that sound like a seven-year-old girl to you? She looked at least thirteen. Does that sound like a thirteen-year-old girl to you, Mr. Dunn? These days, Dunn says, you just never know. Fela, Emmanuel said. Fela St. John. He could see those news photos of her in her Sunday best, a shining yellow dress and bright barrettes in her hair. Then the pictures that had leaked to the Internet, her tiny frame dressed in blood, headless. Okay. Now we just gotta wait, Boogie said. He started toward Tisha's car. 
The group followed. When they get going, we're going to run up on them, crack open a window, and pull them out. No playing around. We're doing this right. They didn't have to wait very long. The couple looked young. Emmanuel only glimpsed them for a second as they turned hard into the parking lot. They parked and soon their silver sedan was bouncing gently. All Emmanuel knew for sure was that one had brown hair and the other blonde. All right, I want to put in blood real quick, said Boogie, as he pulled a small box cutter from the glove compartment. He handed the cutter to Tisha, who took his right forearm. She brought the blade to his skin and with surprising ease cut a large five into him. It feels good, I swear, Boogie said, as he bit his lip and looked into the rear view. Once Tisha was finished, she handed the cutter to Boogie, who scooted closer to her and reached over the middle console so he could carve a five into Tisha's shoulder. It's going to be okay. Don't be nervous, Boogie said. Tisha took several sharp breaths in, then exhaled in a great wave once he was finished. Emmanuel could see the five sprout up in red. Boogie turned in his seat to hand Mr. Coder the blade. Shit. They look like they might be getting ready to dip. We gotta move. Boogie took his blade back, then looked at Emmanuel. Hit those windows, Boogie said to Emmanuel, who was sandwiched between the two older men. Then we'll pull him out. Boogie unlocked and opened his door first, then Tisha opened hers. The air that flooded into the car felt charged. Emmanuel waited for the two men sitting on either side of him to open their doors. The group of them walked slowly across the lot. The bopping stopped. They knew. Fela St. John. He said the name to clear his head. Fela St. John. Fela St. John. Emmanuel imagined the fear the couple in the car might be feeling. He imagined each of the Finkelstein five. Emmanuel ran forward with a force he imagined could crush anything, swung his bat into the rear window on the right side. The bat met the glass and clanked. His body was tingling with energy, and where there had been grinding and heat... There was an explosion. Fela St. John, he roared, and swung at the window a second time. It shattered, and suddenly the night was aflame with screams. Oh, shit! A voice from the car screamed. The other screamed in the language of fear. No words. Fela St. John! Emmanuel screamed from somewhere deep inside himself. He ran to the other side of the car and smashed the other rear window in three swings. The screams, already impossibly loud, doubled in intensity. Everything sounded like everything else. The other door was open, then closed, open, then closed, in a tug of war between Boogie and the man in the car. Fela St. John! Boogie yelled, pulling the man's torso and head out of the car. His arms still gripped the door. Boogie raised his foot and kicked hard at the top of his head. Tisha did the same, 
she wore wedges that fell on the man's head like bricks. Red blood drizzled the concrete. After a few more stomps, he seemed mostly powerless and let them drag his body out. The man in the glasses and Mr. Coder had the other door open and pulled out the woman, a young girl maybe in college who was kicking and yelling sounds that Emmanuel had heard only in horror movies. I beg of you, I implore you, not to consider anything but the facts, the prosecutor says to begin her closing. Over the last several days, we have heard the accused try to wiggle out of one simple fact. He murdered five children completely unprovoked. He may think his chainsaw some holy weapon or a scepter bestowed on him by God, but don't let him go on believing that. Please don't let the blood of these five children with all the potential in the world spill into nothingness. Please show us that they mattered. These children who were killed before they ever got a chance to know the world, to love, to hate, to laugh, to cry, to see all the things that we've seen and finally decide what kinds of people they might want to be. They mattered. Don't let their deaths go unpunished. We have a system that, though it can never ease the pain, tries to right the wrongs. We have a system that, though it won't ever succeed, attempts valiantly to fill this all-consuming void torn into the heart of the world by men like George Wilson Dunn. I happen to be one of the people who are perhaps foolish enough to believe there is a difference between good and evil. Somehow. Still, please, show me I'm not a fool. Show the parents of these children they aren't fools for demanding justice, for knowing the idea of justice was born for them and this very moment. Mr. George Dunn destroyed something. Maybe the only sacred thing. Show him it matters. Show him that you know these children, Tyler Imboya, Felas St. John, Akua Harris, Marcus Harris, and J.D. Haroy, were humans with a heart, just like any one of you. The two white bodies huddled together, trapped in a circle of Emmanuel and the rest of them. The man was crying. His face was bruised. Red flowed from his nose to his lips. He'd been bargaining for the last minute. Please, please, what can we give you? His body shook. Please, it's yours, please. The woman huddled on the ground beside him, made raspy choking sounds. Fela, Fela, Fela. It was a trance. Emmanuel tried to look at the eyes of the young couple. He smashed his bat against the concrete several times while yelling the name. The bat bouncing off the ground sang a metallic yelp and shocked electricity into his veins. Say it for me, Emmanuel said suddenly. A screeching, crazy voice came from a part of him he was just discovering, but which he understood had been growing for a very long time. Say her name, Emmanuel said.
He pointed his bat at the couple. Say her name for me. I need to hear it. He raised his bat, and both the white bodies flinched in response. He crashed the bat down. He felt the bark of the bat against the concrete. This is what it is to be the wolf, the bat screamed. You have been the sheep, but now you are the wolf. Say it for me. I beg of you, Emmanuel screamed. This, he knew, was going all the way. He could feel the group feed on his fury. Fela, St. John! Fela, St. John! Fela, St. John! They chanted in praise. Tell me you love her, Emmanuel said. Tell me I'm crazy. I'm begging you. Say her name. Emmanuel looked down at the tears and the red that seemed to be all that was left of the couple. They weren't even people. Just pumping hearts, hormones. He wondered if his rage would end. He imagined it leaking out of him. He figured that at the other side of the tunnel, after the naming, he might be happy. But as he thrashed and yelled and saw it all, he felt nothing leaving him. There was only throbbing, yelling and screaming and banging a bat on the ground. He thought that maybe he was being exactly who he really was for once, doing exactly what was expected of him. The screaming of the couple there, the honesty of their fear. He felt it giving him wings. Boogie, standing beside Emmanuel, motioned for him to hand the bat over so he could finish what they'd started. Emmanuel looked toward the weeping man. His shirt was on backward. The woman was quieting down. She did not have much more breath to give. But in the middle of all those sounds of rage, timidly, but definitely, Emmanuel heard something come from the woman's mouth. Fela St. John, the woman said. And as she did, Emmanuel looked into the eyes of the woman, and she looked back into his. Let me get that, Boogie screamed, opening his palms to receive the bat. I want to be the one. I want to feel it. Please let me. Please. When Emmanuel did not hand the bat over, Boogie's fire blazed brighter. This can't wait. I need this now, he said, as he pulled out the box cutter. I'll start it, Boogie said, looking at Emmanuel. Emmanuel gripped the bat. Boogie's eyes were large and heavy as he turned toward the couple. The blade in his fist grew as his thumb pushed at the box cutter. He stepped forward. I don't know what to do. Emmanuel screamed and swung the bat full force, cutting the wind in half and hitting Boogie in the flank, crashing the bat at his ribs. The box cutter fell to the floor. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen and ladies, the defense stands, strides toward the jurors, adjusts the knot of his tie, then continues. The prosecution has tried to prove that George Dunn is a monster incapable of love, a monster that would hack down five helpless children. 
But what the prosecution has failed to do is prove that he was not a hero saving his children from five monsters. That may sound harsh, but let's be honest. We've seen this story before. A hard-working, middle-class white man is put in a situation where he has to defend himself. And all of a sudden, he's a racist. All of a sudden, he's a murderer. No motive, no prior history, except for several ridiculous stories concocted by so-called childhood friends and so-called family members. It's all very convenient, I think that all these facts and testimonies suddenly align perfectly to incriminate a man who was spending an evening with his children. Before you make your decision, I want you to remember a single word. Freedom. It sounds better than prison or death or fear, doesn't it? Freedom just has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? Bring freedom. Please, please, freedom. Boogie fell to the ground in a heap. God damn it! He screamed. Breathing seemed to be hard for him. Tisha yelled, then crawled to Boogie's side on the ground. Her yellow dress puddled around her. Boogie mumbled violent words as he writhed in the middle of a small sun in Tisha's arms. Mr. Coder and the man in glasses stood without moving. The white couple was now completely silent. Emmanuel took two steps, dragging the bat on the ground. He stood above the couple. Fela St. John! Fela St. John! the couple screamed. Emmanuel looked down on them and saw himself in their eyes. He was the wolf. He felt the bat in his hands. He wanted to stand there forever. He wanted to scream and feel all their fear in his stomach till he burst. Emmanuel looked around. He heard the screams of police vehicles more clearly now. Mr. Coder and the other man were running away. He heard the sirens and for the first time in his life, Emmanuel did not fear them. Put your hands in the air! A giant voice, one from an entirely different world, said. Emmanuel smiled. He very slowly raised both of his arms. Tisha cried quietly over Boogie, who was still mumbling in a dream. Drop the weapon! The voice called. Red and blue lights tie-dyed it all. Fela Saint! Emmanuel began as he dropped the bat with his hands held above his head. He thought of the names. Then he felt it. The feeling of his blackness rising to an almighty 10.0. He heard a boom that was like the child of thunder. He saw his own brain burst ahead of him. Hardy red confetti. His blood splashed all over the pavement and the couple. He saw the Finkelstein Five dancing around him. Tyler Mboya, Akua Harris, J.D. Haroy, Marcus Harris, Fela St. John. They told him they loved him, still, forever.
in that moment, with his final thoughts, his last feelings as a member of the world. Emmanuel felt his blackness slide and plummet to an absolute nothing, point nothing. Things my mother said. My mother's favorite thing to say to me was, I am not your friend. She'd often say, You are my firstborn son, my only son, as a reminder to not die. She loved saying as a way to keep me humble, I didn't have a mother. You're lucky. You have a mother. When the TV went dark, my mother said, Good. Now you can read more. Then our house at the bottom of the hill lost all its life. Gas, water, electric. One day I came home to the warm smell of chicken and rice. I hadn't been able to steal a second burger in the cafeteria at school that day. My stomach whined. At home the fridge had become a casket bearing nothing. The range and oven had become decorations meant to make a dying box look like a home. Hunger colored those days. Where is this from? I asked, already carving out a healthy portion from a worn gray pot. My mother pretended she didn't hear me. She was studying the pages of her massive white Bible at the kitchen table. Wide sheets of light pressed through the window and draped her. She spent her days reading that big Bible. Its pages wore to film as her fingers fluttered from psalm to psalm. She'd be asleep by the splash of dusk. I, on the other hand, would be up for hours, trying to do homework by the blue glow of my cell phone, clinging to its light until it died. At night, hunger and I huddled together. I'd fall asleep, thinking one day I would change everything. That afternoon I ate the chicken and rice. It tasted like pepper and smoke. How did you make this, Mom? I asked again. She looked up from her Bible. I would have they. Did you pray over your food? Did you say your psalms today? I ate the food quickly, greedily. I chewed the bones till they splintered in my mouth. Another thing my mother often said, You are the best thing that ever happened to me. Later, when I was in the backyard hesitant to return to the dying box as the sun dipped away, I found a patch of charred grass and a small circle of blackened stones and pebbles. An ash moon branded into a sea of wild green grass. I touched a gray rock, partially blackened by flame, to see if it was still hot. I felt proud and ashamed. For the record, I know I was lucky. I know I am lucky. I don't think you're stupid. I know I am not your friend. I hope you can be proud of me. The Era Suck one and die, says Scotty. A tall, mostly true kid. I'm aggressive, because I think you don't know shit. We're in how it was class. Well, Mr. Harper says, twisting his ugly body toward us, 
You should shut your mouth, because you're a youth teen who doesn't know shit about shit, and I'm a full middler who's been teaching this stuff for more years than I'm proud of. Understood, says Scotty. Then Mr. Harper went back to talking about the time before the turn, which came after the Big Quick War, which came after the Long Big War. I was thinking about going to the nurse for some pre-lunch good. I do bad at school because sometimes I think when I should be learning. So, after the Big Quick, Mr. Harper continues in his bored voice, Science and philosopher guys realized that people had been living wrong the whole time before, sacrificing themselves, their efficiency, and their wants. This made a world of distrust and misfortune, which led to the big wars. Back then everyone was a liar. It was so bad that it would not have been uncommon for people to tell Samantha— Mr. Harper points a finger at Samantha, who sits next to me, that she was beautiful, even though obviously she is hideous. Samantha nods her ugly head to show she understands. Her face is squished so bad, she's always looking in two different directions. Sometimes kids who get pre-birth optiselected come out all messed up. Samantha is... Unoptimal. That's the official name for people like her, whose optimization screwed up and made their bodies horrible. I don't have any gene corrections. I wasn't optimized at all. I am not optimal or ideal. But I'm also not unoptimal, so I wasn't going to look like Samantha, which is good. It's not all good, though, since no optiselect means no chance of being perfect either. I don't care. I'm true. I'm proud, still. Looking over being nosy, because sometimes I do that, I see Samantha log into her class pad. I would have been pretty slash beautiful. Or... And now Mr. Harper is looking at me. I can feel him thinking me into an example. Back then a teacher might have told Ben who we know is a dummy, that he was smart, or that if he would just apply himself, he'd do better. The class laughs, because they think a world where I'm smart is hee-haw. In my head I think, Mr. Harper, do you think that back then students would think you were something other than a fat, ugly skin sack? Then I say, Mr. Harper... Do you think back then students would think you were something other than a fat, ugly skin sack? I don't know what they'd say about me, Mr. Harper says. Probably that it was a great thing that I was a teacher and that my life wasn't trash. Anything else, Ben? I start to say something else about how they must really, really have liked lying to say Mr. Harper was a good teacher but I don't say that out loud, because even though I'm being true, they'd say I was being emotional, and it was clouding my truth. I understand, I say. Being emotional isn't prideful, and being truthful, prideful, and intelligent are the best things. 
I'm truthful and prideful as best as I can be. Emotional truth-clouding was the main thing that led to the long big war, and the big quick war. They're called the Water Wars because of how the old Federation lied to its own people about how the amalgamation of allies had poisoned the water reservoirs. The result was catastrophic-slash-horrific. Then, since the people of the old Federation were mad because of their own truth-clouding, they kept on warring for years and years and the old Federation became the new Federation that stands proudly today. Later on, when the amalgamation of allies suspected a key reservoir had been poisoned, they asked the new Federation if they'd done it. In a stunning act of graciousness and honesty, my new Federation ancestors told the truth, said, Yeah, we did poison the reservoir, and in doing so, saved many, many lives that were later more honorably destroyed via nuclear. The wars going on now, Valid Storm Alpha, and the True Freedom Campaign are valid-slash-true wars because we know we aren't being emotional fighting them. Class, please scroll to Chapter 41 and take it in, Mr. Harper says. The class touches their note screens. The chapter is thirty-eight pages. I don't even try to read it. I look at some chapter videos of people doing things they used to do. A man throws three balls into the air. A woman in a dress spins on one leg. After three minutes, the class is done reading the chapter. Their speed read, trademark, chips, make reading easy slash quick for them. Speed read, trademark, lets optimized people take in words faster than I can hardly see them. Since I'm a clearborn, I look while they read. I will read the chapters on my own later. But even staring at the videos and pictures is better than some can do. Samantha can't hardly look at her screen. And then there's Nick and Rafi, who are the class shoe-lookers. All they do is cry and moan. They were both optimized and still became shoe-lookers. Being emotional is all they are. And it means they aren't good for anything. I'm glad Samantha and Nick and Rafi are in the class. Because of them, I'm not bottom-slash-last in learning and I don't want to be overall bottom-slash-last at all. After the others have read the chapter, Mr. Harper goes back to talking about how untrue the lives people used to live were. We've all heard about the times before the turn. But hearing Mr. Harper, who is a teacher and hopefully not a complete ass-slash-idiot, talk about all the untruths people used to think were regular makes me proud to be from now and not then. Still, I mostly only half-listen because I'm thinking. When the horn goes off and it's time for rotation, I hang back so I can speak truth to Mr. Harper. Mr. Harper, I say. What, Ben? Today, during a lot of your session, I was thinking about beating you to death with a rock. Hmm. Why? I don't know. I'm not a brain healer. If you don't know, how would I? Go to the nurse if you want. I walk toward the nurse's office. On the way there, I see three shoe-lookers together in front of one of our school's 
war monuments. A glass case holding a wall with the nuclear shadows of our dead enemies on it. Two of the shoe-lookers cry, and the third paces between the other two biting his nails. Marlene is near them. Marlene is my sibling. She is five cycles older than I am, and training to be a numbers-plus taxes teacher. Marlene is also the reason I was not given a pre-birth optiselection. When Marlene was optiselected, all her personality points attached to only one personality paradigm and made her a para-one. A person who's only about one thing. There are all kinds of paradigms, like intelligence, conscientiousness, or extroversion. Optolife, trademark, releases different personality packages people can pay for. My parents were successful enough to get a standard package of seven points to spread across a few paradigms. That's what they wanted for Marlene, a balanced, successful person. But all seven of the points that could have gone toward her being a bunch of different stuff all went to one paradigm. Ambition. And that much of anything makes you a freak slash the worst. But some companies like Learning Inc. prefer people like Marlene. She's a good worker. She is good at getting things she wants. It's all she does. Get things. When Marlene was six and I was still a crying bag of poop, my parents had to convince her that having a younger brother would actually help her to be a good teacher, because she could practice information transfer on me. They also told her that I, as a clearborn, could never be in competition with her in life or in their hearts after they caught her trying to smother me with a pillow. They tell me that story and laugh about it now. After Marlene, my parents decided optimizing me wasn't worth the risk. When I was younger, she used to force me to read books for hours. She tried to make me remember things, and when I couldn't, she would slap me or pull my hair or twist my fingers. When I cheated and she didn't notice, she would hug me and squeeze so tight I couldn't breathe. She'd kiss my forehead. When I got old enough to really be in school and didn't do well there either, Marlene gave up on me. No one can make a diamond out of a turd, she said. Got it, Marlene, I said. Diamonds are actually made from... I don't care, Marlene. I'm proof she isn't the perfect teacher, and she hates me for it. How I feel about Marlene. She could kill over plus die, and I'd be happy, plus ecstatic. She has two cups of water in her hands. She looks at me quickly, then pours a cup of water onto the heads of each of the crying shoe-lookers. Wet the wetter is a game people play with shoe-lookers sometimes. People like to trip them or pour water on the heads of criers because they won't do anything back and it's humorous. The two shoe-lookers are crying harder than ever now, but not moving. Water drips, drips from their heads and clothes. Then, Marlene says, Isn't it your lunch session? Yes, I say. This isn't the food sector. I understand. I am inquiring because your ability to move effectively through an academic space reflects upon my own person, Marlene says.
I look at the empty cups in her hands. I am me, and you are you. I don't care what reflects on you, I say. You know, this school will be mine in the future, she says. Even you should understand that. Marlene always talks about how she will take the school over, how she'll be such a good teacher that everything will be hers. Okay. Don't talk to me, I say loudly. Para one. I say much more softly because she's scary. Marlene comes close to me. The shoe lookers drip. The dry one paces back and forth. What do you say? Marlene asks. I don't say anything. I look at her eyes that always look the same, always searching for something to push over and stomp. Marlene backs off and lets me go. She walks away laughing at the wet shoe lookers, and at me, I guess. Shoe lookers don't really do anything to anybody except make them proud to be themselves and not a no-good shoe looker. People say that if you tell a lot of lies, you eventually start being all depressed and weepy like them. The shoe lookers don't feel anything but sad. They feel it so much you can see it in everything they do. They're always looking at the ground. I walk to the nurse in big steps. Everybody gets their mandatory good in the mornings with breakfast at school, but they have extra at the nurse's. I go to the nurse because good makes me feel good. When I have good, it's easy to be proud and truthful and ignore the things that cloud my truth like Marlene or being made into an example or knowing I'll never be perfect. The nurse, Miss Higgins, is shaped like an old pear. Her body type is not attractive. She isn't in a union and doesn't have any kids because she's ugly and works as a school nurse. Today her face looks tired plus more tired. I prefer Miss Higgins. Miss Higgins looks at me, pulls her injector from her desk. There are vials of fresh good on a shelf behind her. It's quiet, so I talk. Why don't you quit if you hate it here so much? I ask as she screws the good into the injector gun. Because I need credits she says. She steps to me. I stretch my neck out for her and close my eyes. She puts one hand on one side of my neck. Her hand is warm plus strong. She stabs the injector needle in. My head feels the way an orange tastes. I open my eyes and look at her. She waits. I look at her more. She frowns then gives me another shot. And then I feel the good. Bye, I say to Miss Higgins. She sweeps the air with her fingers like, be gone. On the way to my usual food break table, I walk past a table of shoe lookers whispering to themselves. A few are crying. Shoe lookers, if they're good for anything, it's crying. I laugh because the good is going full blast and it's funny how the shoe lookers just don't have a chance. How they're so down that even good doesn't help them much. At my table, Scotty, John, and some others are laughing, but I don't know why. So I feel mildly frustrated. Oh, hey, Ben! 
We were so worried. Please have a seat, says John. I sit down next to him. How are you feeling today? Scotty asks. And I feel even more frustrated, because I think they're using me for humor because I needed extra good instead of just the mandatory breakfast good. We care, Scotty says, making his voice like a bird. The table laughs. I look around. Then I relax because I catch on to things, and I can see that they're making fun of how things used to be. Not me. Why, thank you for asking, I say. I'm doing great. They laugh more, and it feels great. All the laughing at the table. Please take my drink because you look thirsty and because you're a really smart guy, Scotty says, and everybody laughs even harder. Catch, Ben, Scotty says as he tosses a box drink. I don't move to catch it fast enough because I'm thinking, I just got good from the nurse and already I'm feeling things other than good, which isn't how it works. The drink box goes over my head and smacks Leslie McStow right in the head. She drops her tray and her food. Leslie frowns. I laugh with everybody else. Leslie was a twin. Then her brother Jimmy died. Jimmy was a shoe looker who cooked his head in a food zapper. Leslie is always telling lies about how great things are, or how nice everyone looks, and how everybody is special. Leslie McStow is one of the least truthful people around, which is frustrating because she and I scanned high for compatibility on our genetic compatibility charts, probably because we're both clearborns. Leslie's parents have protested against OptiLife, trademark. They don't believe in perfect. I believe in it. I just hate it. Leslie stands there looking lost and stupid. I want more laughs, so I stand up and make my mouth a huge wide smile and say, Sorry about that, Leslie. Let me use my credits to get you a new lunch. The table goes crazy. I have a lot of credits because my mother and father are successful, which I benefit from. Leslie's face goes from ow to all smiles as she looks at me. Then she says, That's so nice of you. It's a surprising thing to hear because no one has said it to me before. The table is wild slash crazy, which makes me proud. I keep it going. Come on, let's get you another lunch, I say in a voice I imagine would have been regular a long time ago. Leslie McStow follows me into the food part of the cafeteria. Those people are idiots, my mother said once. She wasn't talking about the McStows specifically, but about a bunch of people who were giving away candy and flowers to strangers on the newscast. The McStows and the people my mother called idiots are part of the anti. They're anti-good, anti-prebirth science. Anti-progress. At my school, I can count the number of anti-families on my hands, but there are a lot of them in the worst parts of the New Federation. Get whatever you want, I say, even though the guys at the table can't hear me over here. Thanks so much, Leslie says. When she smiles, 
It looks like somebody scooped holes in her cheeks. Because of her dimples. She grabs a juice and a greens bowl, and that's it. I register my credit code into the machine for her, and she smiles at the lunchman who doesn't say anything. Have a great day, I say to him, because I'm still doing the thing I was doing. He stares. When we come back to the main part of the cafeteria, I'm expecting a bunch of laughs. No one at the table notices. They're eating now. I feel frustrated. Thanks, Benny. You're such a sweetie, Leslie says. I want to let her know the whole thing was for laughs, but then I don't, because I'm thinking. I sit down, and Leslie goes to sit with the shoe lookers, though she herself is not a shoe looker. I think, maybe I should have been truthful and reminded her about the fact that her face is arranged nicely, so she would remember we scanned as compatible and might eventually be part of a workable, functional, familial unit with me. Everybody has their own room in our housing unit. I have a mother and a father, and there's Marlene. In my room I do physical maintenance, like push-ups and leg pushes. And then I read the chapters from school, until I smell food. I go downstairs where my mother and father and sibling are all at a table, chewing. What are you looking at me for? I ask. I received a message saying you've been taking extra good, my father says. I take a bowl from the washer, and I push the button that makes the cooker front slide open. I put a spoon in. I feel the hot inside the cooker box. I fill the bowl with meat and grains from the cooker. Sometimes I need it. And why aren't you being truthful, I say. Marlene told you that. Marlene, since she's training at the school, knows stuff about me and what I do there. Don't accuse anyone of not being truthful, my mother says. I obscured the full truth because you have a tendency to respond emotionally, like some kind of neck crane, says my father. Standing and staring at them, I dive my spoon into my bowl. I take a bite and chew. The grains and meat taste like grains and meat. I only pay attention because people still associate me with you, Marlene says. Once I'm certified, I won't be interested. Until then, you were still a periphery reflection of my person. Sometimes I imagine Marlene drowning in a tank of clear water. Okay, I've listened to you, and now I'm frustrated, I say. We are also frustrated, because people still associate you with us, even though we are our own successful individuals, my mother says. Not to mention the fact that your clear birth was a mistake and that you are alive only due to your mother's irrationality brought about by maternity, my father says. My mother looks at me, then my father, and then nods her head. It's true. It's true, she says. I drop my food on the floor and walk away. The bowl doesn't break. The food splats on the floor. Have some pride, Ben, 
my father says. You always say the same things. It's frustrating, I say from the hole, so they can't see me. I squeeze my eyes shut so no water can come from them. I try to have some pride. I know I was a mistake already, so I don't know why you mention it so often. It's because the fact that we didn't select genes during your pre-birth period almost certainly correlates to your being so slow and disappointing, my father calls. And we're frustrated with you and tangentially with ourselves as a result. I know all that, I say. I go to the bathroom. I grab the house injector from behind the mirror. I go to grab a vial of good. There is none. I spin around like it will be in the air somewhere. Then I take a breath and close my eyes and close the mirror. I open it again slowly, hoping it will be different. It isn't. There is an injector, but no good. I want to scream, but don't. Instead, I go to my room. I sit on the bed. I try to sleep. All I do is sweat and feel hurt all around my body and in my head. It gets dark. By then, I feel like death slash poop. Deep into the night, my mother comes into the room. You've been screaming, she says. I don't care if I've been disturbing you. I'm frustrated you hid our good, I say from under the covers. I hear her step to me. She rips the covers away. She is frowning in the dark. She puts a hand on my face and turns it. Then she uses the injector in her hand and stabs it into my neck. She gives me three shots, and the good makes my teeth rattle. My mother's hand sits on my head for a while. Then she turns and leaves, and then everything feels so right and so fine that I fall asleep smiling. At school I get my usual morning good, and in How It Was class, we talk about before again. So, even though people said all these things and acted like everyone else was important, there were still wars and hurting, which proves it was a time of lies, Mr. Harper says. But yesterday you said some frog crap about how some things were better and how it was easier in the old days, Scotty says. This is why you'll be a mid-level tasker at best, Mr. Harper says. I said some people still believe that the old way was better. Some people still live the old way because they prefer it. I think those people are ass jerks, Scotty says. No one cares what you think, Mr. Harper says, though I agree with you. <laughs> How do? No says Samantha in her deep, broken voice. She is normally quiet. Mm, maybe okay. Shut up, screwface, Scotty says. He takes off his shoe and throws it at Samantha. It hits her and makes a thunk sound and then bounces off her head onto my desk. The class laughs. Mr. Harper laughs. Samantha tries to laugh. I stare at the shoe. See? Here we have a teachable moment. 
Mr. Harper says. Back before the turn, Scotty might not have been honest about how he expressed himself, and Samantha would go on thinking he thought what she thought was smart. I go straight to Miss Higgins after class. When I get there, she looks at me like I'm broken. You've been put on a good restriction by your legal guardians, she says. I can see the vials behind her. I can almost feel them. Almost, but definitely not. I only need two, I say. Even one shot, please. A formal restriction has... I know! I yell. I turn around and leave. The floors of the school are tan and white. I walk to lunch. It is hard to keep my head up, because I don't feel proud or good at all. When I get to the cafeteria, I hear someone say, Happy birthday! When I look up, I see Leslie McStow looking at me. She's sitting at a table with a bunch of sorry shoe lookers. Then she stands and wraps her arms around me. Happy birthday, she says again. I used to hide in my room and try to remember everything from whatever Marlene had given me to read so I could get a hug like that after her tests. But this is the first one I've had in many cycles. I'm standing there thinking of how Leslie McStow is strong, plus soft. I can feel her breathing on my neck a little. It's your birthday, Leslie says. She is smiling at me. Her eyes seem excited slash electronic. Oh, I say. I have seen fifteen cycles now. We scanned compatible, you know. It's in your charts, she says quickly, answering the question I was thinking. Oh, if you want, my parents would love to have you over to celebrate. She looks down at the floor, not like a shoe looker, but like she's ashamed. They like celebrating things. I don't celebrate like that or associate with you. Also, everyone thinks your parents are strange, I say. I know, but it would make us all really happy, she says. This, I realize, is exactly what Mr. Harper was speaking of. Leslie McStow wants me to make her happy for no reason. I look at her and am lost in something that doesn't feel like pride or intellect, or what truth should feel like. Please, she says, and she hands me a paper that is an invitation for later in the day. I take the invitation, and then I walk to the table where I normally sit with the people I usually associate with. At home, my familial unit says things to me. Hello, my father says. You seem agitated, my mother says. You are now on the good restriction list, Marlene says. I don't say anything to anyone without any good in me. Everything looks like a different kind of bad. And all I can imagine are the worst things about everyone and everything. And I can't tell if my stomach is aching or whether I'm imagining how bad a really bad stomach ache might be if I had one right then. Either way, it hurts. Ideas that scare me run around in my head. I go to the bathroom, 
I pull the mirror back. There is an injector, but there is still no good. None. Only a shaver and a fluoride paste and a small medical kit. I look in the medical kit just in case. No good. I take the empty injector and bring it to my neck. I hit the trigger and stab, and hope maybe I'll get something. I hit the trigger again. Again. I close the mirror, and a small crack appears in a corner of the glass. I go outside. I'm afraid of how bad I feel. No one asks where I am going. The McStows live in a complex on the outer part of the section. In our section, the poor people all live on the outer parts, so those of us on the inner parts don't have to come in contact with them all the time. They live cramped together in small spaces that are cheaper and, as a result, not as nice in looks or housing capabilities. Keeping warm slash dry, being absent of animals, etc. I haven't had any good since breakfast. I can feel the no good pressing on me, pulling me down. It is getting dark outside. Out at the edge of the section there are so many shoe-lookers slowly moving through the walk streets. They've been abandoned by the people who used to be their families. That's what happens to most shoe-lookers. There are a bunch of soon-deads, and there are a few kid youths, and also every other age there is. Once in a while, one of the shoe-lookers will snap her head up, and her eyes will be wild like she just remembered something important. Then... After a few seconds of wild looking and head turning, she'll drop her head back down. It's worse than frustrating. Being around all those downed heads makes me want to close my eyes forever. I follow the grid walks toward where the McStows live. I focus on the ground because it doesn't make me want to disappear as much. The ground on the way there is gray and gray and gray. My shoes are black and gray. Good, in its vile, is clean slash clear. Long fingernails bite my shoulders. I look up and see a shoe-looker my mother's age. Her hands are near my neck. She screams, Where are we going? And shakes me like she's trying to get me to wake up. Her voice is screechy, like she's been yelling for a long time. I shove her, and then I run because I'm very disturbed. I make sure I'm looking up as I run. I'm sweaty when I reach Leslie's housing complex. Inside it is not nice. A bunch of cats and a raccoon race and fight in the lobby area. The walls are dirty and the paint is peeling. I walk up a stairwell that smells like a toilet. When I find the McStow door, I knock on it. I can hear people rustling inside. I imagine myself falling into a jar of needles over and over again. I haven't had any good. The door opens. It's bright inside. Happy birthday! Comes from several mouths. The voices together make my heart beat harder. Hello? I say. Come in. Come in, says Leslie. There's a tall man with a skinny neck and gray hair. He wears an ugly shirt with bright flowers on it. Great to see you. Really great to see you, Father McStow says. 
I'm wondering if in the McStow's home, people say everything twice. The food sector is a small space to the left. It smells like something good. In the main sector are Leslie McStow, her mother, her father, and three fidgeting shoe-lookers about my age. They have the usual sad-slash-dirty look. They might be from the school. I don't know. I don't look at shoe-lookers. Come in, Mother McStow says, even though I'm already inside. She is a thin woman with a short haircut. There are folds of loose skin under her neck. I come in farther. Everyone is looking at me. How was your walk over? Leslie says. Her face is smiling. Bad, I say. This part of the section is worse than where my unit lives. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Father Mixto says. Let's have some cake, now that the man of the hour is here in one piece. Man of the hour? He is talking about me. There are two beds in the main section. There are sheets and plates on one bed, so it can be a table. There are pillows arranged on the other to make it a place to sit. I've never had cake, I say. I haven't. It isn't something proud people eat. It makes people fat, my mother says, just like the candy the antis hand out in the streets. Well, isn't that a shame? Mother Mixto says, even though she is smiling. She has dimples like her daughter. In this house, we eat cake every chance we get, seems like. She laughs, and so does Father Mixto. Leslie laughs. Even one of the three shoe-lookers laughs a little. I can tell by how the shoe-looker's shoulders jump while she stares at the floor. You shouldn't feel sorry for me, I say. My housing unit is much nicer than this. It gets quiet. Then the house starts laughing some more, even though I don't know exactly why they are laughing. I'm not too frustrated. This one, says Father Mixto, a true comedian. What's a true comedian? I ask. Joke tellers, humor makers, says Father Mixto. Back in the old world, it was a life profession to make laughter. One of many interesting old-world lives. I don't believe that, I say, because I don't. That's okay, says Mother Mixto, still giggling. Let's eat some cake. Sounds sweet to me, says Father Mixto. He laughs, and so does his family. We move over to the table-slash-bed. The main sector of the housing unit has walls covered in sheets of paper with too many colors on them. Cake, Mother Mixto says as she walks to the food sector, was a delicacy in the old world used to celebrate events like union-making, the lunar cycle, battle victory, and, of course, birthdays. Mother Mixto looks for some utensil in the food sector. I look at Father Mixto and ask, Is that the food sector your son killed himself in? There's a clang-slash-clack sound from Mother McStow dropping something on the floor. Father McStow looks at me. He touches my shoulder. His hand is large-slash-heavy. You know something? 
He speaks low so only I can hear him. One of the things we like to do in this home is be careful of what we say. What you said didn't have to be said. And now you've hurt my wife. She'll be fine, but... Lying for others is what caused the big quick and the long big, I say. Maybe. Or maybe it was something else. I'm talking about thinking about the other person, you know? Father Mixto whispers to me. I'm sure you have a lot of ideas about this. But it's something we try around here. He smiles and touches my shoulder again. Let's eat some cake, he says in a big voice. A voice for everybody. I haven't had any good since breakfast. And here I am, in Leslie McStow's house. Because she invited me. And because she makes me think of things that aren't Marlene, or optimization, or being forever dumb slash slow. Mother McStow comes back. She smiles at me as she hands me a knife big enough to cut a bunch of things. It was tradition for birthday boys to cut the cake after the singing of the traditional birthday hymn, Mother McStow says. She looks around quickly with wide eyes, then begins to sing. The rest of her family joins in. The shoe lookers look down and up and down and up trying to decide what to be and even they mumble along with the McStows. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday, happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday, it's your day, yeah. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday, yeah! When they finish, Mother McStow tells me with her eyes to cut the cake. The knife cuts through easily. I forgot that traditionally you are supposed to make a wish before you cut into the cake, says Mother McStow. But after is fine, I suppose. You can wish for anything. Of course, I wish for good. I put one more cut into the cake, then Mother McStow takes the knife from me and I see she cuts into the middle of it instead of off the side like I did. She cuts pieces for everybody. Father McStow and Leslie and I sit on the bed made for sitting. The rest stand and chew. The cake is the sweetest thing I've ever eaten. Do you like it? asks Mother McStow. It's good, because it's so sweet, I say. It makes my tongue and teeth feel more alive. And it's an authentic old-time recipe you can't get anywhere else, Mother McStow says. When half my cake is gone, I turn to Father McStow. Do you have any extra good? I ask somewhat discreetly, since taking too much good is not a proud thing. Father McStow looks at me with cheeks full of cake. We like to think of our home as a throwback to an era before industrial good, he says. He swallows, then puts a hand on my shoulder, then removes it. I need good. You're thinking now. This is then, 
Father McStow does something with his hands. Think of our home as a place where no one needs industrial good. Is it because you're poor that you don't have any good? I ask. Father McStow laughs so hard he spits wet cake onto the floor. Quickly, Mother McStow cleans it up. He looks at his daughter and says, This one is funny. A real comedian. I'm not telling jokes, I say. That's why you're so good, Father McStow says. When I want to be funny, I usually tell an old-time joke, like this one. He clears his throat. Have you heard the one about the deaf man? What? That's what he said, Father McStow says. If you would have said no, I would have said, neither is he. Get it? He touches me on the shoulder and chuckles. Leslie and the shoe-lookers giggle with him. Truly, we like to think we, as you've seen, have created a space that is really a throwback to a time before the big quick or even before the long big. My family and I recreate that decent era for people who might want or need it. I'm frustrated because you don't have any good. I'm leaving, I say. What we... Hey, Linda, could you grab some of our literature? Offer here is a way to feel and be happy without good. We can feel good just by being together, and you can join us a few times a week depending on the package that works for you. Leslie is smiling, and the shoe-lookers are eating cake, switching between weak smiles and lost frowns. I'm going home, I say. Take some literature, he says. With her face smiling, Mother McStow hands me a pamphlet. On it are smiling faces and words and different prices. Different amounts of time are trailed by different credit values on each row of information. There are lots of choices, Leslie says. Think it over. If any package feels right for you, let Leslie know. We recommend starting off with at least three days a week here with us in the era. You'll feel brand new. Just look at these guests. Mother McStow points to the shoe-lookers, who are still munching cake. They look at me, and they all try to smile. I get up. I'm frustrated because I thought this was something different, I yell. I haven't had any good. I feel the pamphlet crushing in my fist. On the front, it says, Life in the Era, in curly letters. Also, your daughter doesn't frustrate me, so that's why I came. Look over the literature, Father McStow says when I'm at the door. I haven't had any good since the morning. That's why I'm emotional, I scream before I slam the door and run back to my own housing unit. I get tired so I have to walk. Plus, there is no good at my housing unit anyway. The night is black. The grid walk is gray and gray and gray. There's some sweet left on my teeth, and even after the sweet is gone, thinking about it helps keep me walking. At breakfast the next day, the good makes me feel better for a few minutes but not even through to the last sip of my milk. 
My neck aches. My brain throbs. The floor of the school is mostly tan, and the patterns against the tan are at least easy to drown in. In Mr. Harper's class, we are talking about the long big and how it led to the big quick, like always. I think of cake during class. At lunch, I go to sit with my usuals. At the table, Scotty says, Back off! We don't want to associate with a shoe-looker like you. Somebody else says, Go sit with the downs over there. I just stand there looking at the ground, because I'm not a shoe-looker, even though with my head down and the feeling in my head and the tears almost in my eyes, I probably look like one. I try to be proud and look up. I feel a boom and a hurt under my eye. I fall. The table laughs. I see that John has punched me to say I'm officially not welcome. My face hurts. I want to lie there, but I get up because I'm pulled up. It is Leslie McStow who pulls me up. She is frowning. When I'm standing, I pick my head up, and she walks with me to the nurse's office. It's okay, Leslie says, lying like they used to, like she does. And I am happy to hear her do it. In the nurse's office, Miss Higgins stares at the two of us. Samantha is sitting in a chair. Samantha is not healthy ever, but she looks at me like, Welcome, and does her happier moaning sound. Miss Higgins pulls a cold pack out of a cold box. I put the cold over my eye. It makes the hurt less. I sit in a chair next to Samantha. Leslie sits in one next to me. He got hit, Leslie says. Yeah, okay, Samantha groans. You got hit, Ms. Higgins says. Yes, I say. Ms. Higgins says nothing. Then she stands up and opens the drawer that holds her injector. Hearing the drawer slide open makes my skin tingle. She turns her back to us so she can feed some fresh new good into the injector. Then at the office door I see my sibling. I heard, says Marlene, you've become a real shoe-looker. Leslie touches my not-cold hand. Her fingers are warm on mine. Ben is on a good restriction, Higgins, Marlene says. With one eye, I look at Leslie McStow, then at Samantha, then at Marlene, and then Miss Higgins. Miss Higgins screws a vial of good into the injector. I'll report you, Marlene says. Miss Higgins continues screwing the vial into the injector and does not look at Marlene. Marlene stands at the office door. She's holding a cup of water. All I want is good. Miss Higgins looks at me with her loaded injector. Leslie squeezes my hand. I look at Miss Higgins. I shake my head. Miss Higgins drops her injector on the desk, then sits down in her chair. She turns her head and looks at the wall. We are quiet. It's quiet for a long time. Leslie looks at me. She wants to smile, but she can't. So with my head down, one hand warm, 
one hand cold, one eye bruising and the other looking at her, I say, Have you heard the one about the deaf man? Lark Street An impossible hand punched my earlobe. An unborn fetus, aborted the day before, was standing at my bedside. His name was Jackie Gunner. So, I guess you didn't have the balls, Jackie Gunner said. His voice was a stern squeak. My eyelids rolled open. He was a tiny silhouette on the end of my pillow, smaller than a field mouse. Well, say something, Dad. He said Dad the way some people say cunt. Do you even feel bad? Yeah, I said. I feel real bad. I feel real bad, Jackie Gunner repeated. Is real bad a hole big enough to fit our lives in? Our, I said. It's a metaphor, Daddy, said a new voice. This one's shy, charming even. A second tiny fetus climbed up my comforter onto my bed. Her name, I knew, was Jamie Lou. Phew, Jamie Lou said at the summit, which was up near my pillow. She plopped down so she was sitting beside Jackie Gunner. A tiny shadow beside a tiny shadow. Twins, I thought. I'm sorry, I began. Don't. Jackie Gunner said. Just don't. So, you didn't have the balls, huh? He repeated, while thrusting and grabbing the space between his tiny, tiny legs. Legs that would never grow big enough to kick things like bottle caps or soccer balls or other people. I think I have more balls than you, and I'm still, like, a trimester away from genitalia. Here he paused as if in reflection. What are balls like? Jamie giggled. I didn't know how to answer him. Uh, they... Well... My voice still dragged from sleep. Whatever, Jamie Gunner said. You wouldn't know. You didn't have the cojones to look. Be nice to Daddy, Jamie Lou said. Jackie Gunner grunted. Then he turned his tiny head and sort of looked at me sideways. Look at me, Dad. The night before, my girlfriend Jacqueline had taken a series of pills that had pushed Jackie Gunner and Jamie Lou out of her. When we found out it was an option, the take-home method had seemed like the way to go. We'd imagine it'd be more humane. The pamphlets instructed us, her, to tuck four pills in the space between her lip and gums, that way they would dissolve, and then the chemicals would find her bloodstream without the detour of her stomach. There would be vomiting. The pamphlet made that clear. Jacqueline cried on the toilet. I held her hand in the beginning. Then she told me to leave, so I did. I listened from the living room. It's okay, Daddy, said Jamie Lou. At this, Jackie Gunner turned and kicked Jamie Lou on the side of the head. Ouch, she said. Hey, I said, feeling like it wasn't the time for violence. 
Shut it. And it's not okay, Jackie Gunner said. He won't even look at us. He's scared, said Jamie Lou, rising. She brought her head close to Jackie Gunner's head and kissed his temple. I don't care, said Jackie Gunner, ignoring the kiss. After about an hour of the most honest pain I can remember hearing, Jacqueline said something I understood. Oh, my God. It's in my... Oh, my God. And I knew they'd been released. I thought I might try to hold her hand again then, but I could not. I could not look into that bathroom. That was only about eight hours before Jackie Gunner and Jamie Lou appeared in my room. Look at me, Dad! Jackie Gunner yelled. I got up carefully, trying not to squish them or bounce the bed and send them flying. I flipped on the light switch. Their heads were too big for their tiny bodies, which were each as thin as a pencil and a fleshy pink. Their skin was shriveled and translucent. I could see through their skulls to pea-sized gray brains. Jackie Gunner's eyes were closed, but behind one of his eyelids there was just an empty socket. Jamie Lou had both her eyes, and she seemed to have working eyelids, too. Their hands and feet were partially webbed, and their scrawny legs shouldn't have been able to support their bodies. They wore a glaze of bright blood. Don't smile at me, Dad, Jackie Gunner said. Okay, I said. Tell me what my mom is like, Jackie Gunner demanded. Tell us everything. Mommy, echoed Jamie Lou. She's pretty cool, I said. Okay, Jackie Gunner said. You want to know right now, I asked. Well, we don't exactly got a whole lot of time, Pops. We're not going to be people, Jamie Lou explained, suddenly somber. I looked at her. I thought of one place to start. My mother's Volvo. It did this thing where if you ever stopped all the way, the car just shut off about half the time. You'd have to rush to shift into park, then twist the key to off, then turn it back on to get the car started again. It'd get going just fine, but the next time you stopped, lights out. Eventually, you got the hang of it, figured out all the little tricks. Like, if I shifted to neutral just as I stopped, the engine would maintain a healthy hum. Or, you could just never stop. Slow down early for every red light. Roll every stop sign. It was my third time driving Jacqueline anywhere. We were about five feet into the intersection, and I was still inching forward. Jacqueline pretended everything was normal. She wore an acid-washed denim jacket over a tank top and some cargo pants. I'm sorry. I know I look crazy, she'd said as she flipped the passenger side visor closed and deflated into the passenger seat with a sigh. She'd just gotten off of work at a store that sold things like cargo pants and acid-washed denim jackets. You do look a little off. I wasn't going to say anything, though, I'd said with a stupid chuckle. I knew she knew she looked fine. Watch it, she said through a real smile.
The car behind me honked. We ended up at a Chinese spot close to my place. After we put our orders in, the man at the counter asked, Separate or together? Jacqueline shot out together before I had a chance to be awkward. I looked at her, and she laughed the laugh she does when she's about to win at something, or is caught in a lie. I deserve something for not mentioning the less-than-roadworthy car you got me riding in, she said. Your mom's a cool lady, I guess, I said to the twins. We've been together for almost a year, but we'll probably go to different colleges in the fall. Oh, no, said Jamie Lou, heartbroken. Oh, no, said Jackie Gunner, mockingly. He used his arm to conk his sister over the head. Chill, I said. It's okay, Jamie Lou said. She wrapped Jackie Gunner in a big hug and kissed the side of his head. Jackie Gunner did not look impressed. He turned his attention back to me. So what? he asked. What about me? We aren't gonna be people, Jamie Lou reminded him. Jackie Gunner ignored her. Me and Jacqueline? That's her name. Well, me and Jacqueline did... She missed her period. We weren't very careful as far as methods, I continued. They're far too young to hear about this kind of thing, I thought. Jackie Gunner looked at me in his weird, closed-eye kind of way, like he had no idea what I was talking about. Jamie Lou nodded silently. She took a test, I said. I spared them these details. Jacqueline and me in the drugstore. Her wiping her eyes and saying I look crazy before we stepped in. The fact that the store was packed, which felt like a mean joke. How we were afraid of getting to the register. How we went to the register. How we were quietly connected, as close as we had ever been as we averted our eyes from those of the strangers around us. How, if I had to pick, I'd say the hero of this whole thing was the young woman behind the store counter. How her brown eyes melted wide, then cooled to a thin, sharp, yet gentle seriousness when Jacqueline pointed behind her to the purple box, hung not far from the cigarettes and iPhone chargers, 99% accuracy emblazoned on its top right corner, how she nodded and tossed the test into a bag so quickly, I would have missed it if I hadn't been watching the whole thing with an unblinking, morbid interest. It was positive. The test. We talked about what to do and decided we couldn't handle it. I mean you. I mean a child. Children. Jackie Gunner responded with a grunt. Jamie Lou didn't say anything. The blood that was slowly secreting from the twins' skin was staining my pillowcase, which they were now sitting on. After the test, we went to a clinic. She took the pills here. It was better that way. My mom works nights. It wasn't fun. It was hard for us, I said. It was hard for her. And me, too. That's it, basically, I said. Somewhere in the middle of it, I'd gotten scared that something was wrong and considered calling 911. 
It seemed impossible that anyone in the medical field would allow a human being to experience what Jacqueline went through. But I did not call 911. I drove her home in the Volvo. My mother left at home most days because she didn't think it was safe. Whatever, Jackie Gunner said. I don't got all day. I want to know what would have happened. The psychic. The psychic, said Jamie Lou. That's where we got to go, said Jackie Gunner. I was afraid they'd ask to go there. Their mother loved those kinds of places. Okay, I said, smiling through my guilt. Okay. I threw on some jeans, some chucks, a light jacket. The twins were losing their pink shine and becoming a grayish red. I understood their time was limited. Let's go, Dad! Hurry up! Jackie Gunner said, as he raised his tiny arms toward me like a toddler waiting to be scooped up. I tried not to look repulsed. I lowered my hand so they could climb up. Jamie Lou tried to hop up onto my hand in one great leap. She tripped and fell face first into my clammy skin. Whoops, she said. When she was settled and upright, I practiced moving while holding them, cradling them like puddles in my cupped palm. They were cool and slimy. You guys gonna be okay? No, they said together. I walked taking long, quick steps with my left palm and the twins close to my chest. I used my right hand to shield them, the way you'd guard a flame from the wind. If Jackie Gunner was afraid he'd fall out of my hand onto the concrete, he didn't show it. I felt kind of proud about that. But Jamie Lou curled into a small ball and was shaking with fear. Jackie Gunner kicked at her and said, Baby! Baby, what a baby! I stopped walking. Hey, I said. Can't you be nice for one second? You're going to be a jerk all day. It's in my jeans, Jackie Gunner replied. Very funny, I said, trying to make my voice bigger than it was. It isn't cool. Do better. And you, I said, shifting my attention to Jamie Lou, who was peeking out from the ball she'd rolled herself into. You need to stand up for yourself. Don't let anybody push you around like that, okay? Okay, Jamie Lou squeaked. Whatever, said Jamie Gunner. I stared at him and tried to project a sense of disappointment. He stared back at me, and I felt the disappointment I wanted him to feel rain back all over me. I continued walking toward the psychic's place without looking back into my hand. Jacqueline had gone to see the psychic two days before our appointment at the clinic. I'd asked her not to go. She wouldn't listen. Then I'd asked her which psychic she was going to and when. I'm going to that guy on Lark tomorrow afternoon. You want to come with me? I told her I didn't believe in that kind of stuff. You don't believe in anything, she'd said. The next night she'd called me. I'd been waiting. He was crazy, she'd said. He knew so much. He was like, like even though you're feeling stuck, you need to do what you think is best for you, she'd said. I didn't say anything about it. 
He just knew. I'd sighed heavy, heavy relief and felt guilty about how little guilt I'd felt in that moment. Jacqueline also said the psychic had told her that she and her significant other didn't have a healthy channel of communication. The psychic's place was a few minutes away. There was a sign that said, Lark Street Readings, on a door that had peeling green paint and a gold-colored knob. I reached for the door with my right hand, exposing Jackie Gunner and Jamie Lou to the wind and cold. I grabbed the knob, felt its icy cool in one hand and the twin shivering in the other. I let go of the knob, opened up my jacket, and slid Jackie Gunner and Jamie Lou into the inner chest pocket. Thanks, Pops! Thanks, Daddy. Once we're in there, you have to keep quiet. Okay. I'll do the talking, I said. Whatever, Jamie Gunner said. He didn't seem worried about being in the dark of my inner jacket. He was a pretty brave little guy. Staring up at me, Jamie Lou closed her mouth and puffed her cheeks like she was holding her breath before a big dive. There was a tiny spot of blood in my palm. I wiped it on my jeans. Again, I reached for the doorknob. The door opened with a dry scrape, and together we stepped into the entryway, letting cold air rattle a wind chime above us. Come in, a voice said. Would you like some tea? That's okay. I called up a carpeted set of stairs that led to the psychic's reading area. How did you— Another voice began. I was embarrassed before anything else. Then I felt like I was sinking into the floor. The twins, tucked into my jacket pocket, moved slowly against my chest. Jack? I said. She appeared at the top of the steps in gray sweats tucked into these tall green rain boots and a black windbreaker that used to be mine, but was now definitely hers. I worked my way up the stairs. We kind of stared at each other until she spoke. Hey, she said. This is weird. Yeah. I walked the rest of the way up the carpeted stairs. I thought that maybe I should have given her a hug or a kiss or something. But I didn't. I didn't want to risk crushing Jamie and Jackie. I guess you wanted another reading. I felt so much better after last time, and then I couldn't sleep last night. I still don't feel great, she said, staring into my eyes, watching me. I took a deep breath. That's what these guys are here for, I guess, I said, looking away. We stepped into a beaded curtain that sounded like rain as we walked through. It led to the psychic's living room, which was where he saw clients. There was an old brown table with strange images carved into the wood. An eye that was also the sun. A body that crouched holding a hammer. A bear with wings. There was an entertainment system on one side of the room opposite a gray couch. The television at the center of the console was covered with a purple silk cloth. Another cloth of the exact same color was in the psychic's hands when he emerged from his kitchen, a space adjacent to the living-slash-divining room. He used the cloth to hold a steaming pot by the rim because it had no handle. He had dark black hair and a nose ring. 
He poured the tea into two cups that were already on a counter near the couch. Couple session? he asked. Jacqueline shot me a look that said, See? You knew we were a couple, she said. The twins wiggled. Please, have a seat, guys, the psychic said. We sat on the couch. So, what will it be? The psychic began. Taro? I'm doing a special deal on crystal readings if you want to try something different. And of course I can read your palms for five dollars, he said, as he settled into a wicker chair across from us. He crossed one leg over the other and sipped his tea. He was so comfortable. What do you want to do? Jacqueline said, looking at me. I kept my eyes on the psychic. I don't know, I said. Maybe I'll just watch. You came to the psychic this early in the morning and now you're just going to watch? I didn't really plan on me being here. So now you're going to just sit there? Her voice was doing that thing it does. The psychic sipped his tea. I'll do the cheapest one, I guess, I said. Though what I thought was there is nothing he can say to help me. Fine, she said with a sigh. She sank farther into the couch. Great, the psychic said. Is this your first consultation? Yes, I said. He moved his wicker chair around to our side of the room and sat close to me. Okay. Palms are a good place to start, I think. I offered him my left hand still slightly red with the blood of Jackie Gunner and Jamie Lou. He rubbed it with the purple silk cloth. It was still warm from the tea's heat. He scrutinized my hand. Jacqueline hovered near my shoulder so she could see what was happening. Well, generally, the psychic said as he traced a rectangle around the outside of my palm, the shape of your hand suggests that you tend to be pretty skeptical. Hmm, said Jacqueline. You're the type of dude who has a plan, and you value security. The psychic continued. I looked up at him. His eyes were still locked on my hand. Also see these long fingers you've got, the psychic said as he traced the length of my middle finger. That means you're sensitive to details and need things to be a certain way. Yep. Jacqueline muttered from over my shoulder. And this? The psychic said. There was a tumbling in my jacket. Jackie Gunner was probably bullying his sister again. This is your lifeline, the psychic said. He pointed to the deep brown line closest to my thumb. I realized I was wasting everyone's time. I was worried about Jamie Lou. The way your lifeline sweeps out... To the center of your hand. It favors the plane of Mars, you see. So that means... Stop, please, I said. I pulled a five-dollar bill from my jeans and dropped it on the table. I don't really feel well. It was true. I think I'm going home. It felt like the twins were doing jumping jacks. I was worried. I brought my hand to my chest and pressed it there to steal them. I tried to be careful. Are you serious? 
Jacqueline said. That's so rude. No worries. It's been a pleasure. Good luck with everything, the psychic said, flattening himself into his chair. No, I am so sorry. He's just stressed right now, Jacqueline said. Absolutely, no problem. It's cool. It's cool. It's all cool, said the psychic. He sipped his tea. It is not cool, but thank you. He's been this way for a while, she said, trying to stab me with her eyes. This place is a joke, Jacqueline, I said. I stared at the psychic. Tell her it's a joke. Man, I have nothing to do with you and yours, the psychic said. He put his mug down. Just admit it. Tell her, I said. Tell her. Listen, I'm just the guy who gets up early in the morning and packs the trunk up. I help you get where you're already going, the psychic said calmly. What are you talking about? Jacqueline asked. I could feel the twins listening, wanting to be a part of this. It felt like they were trying and failing to pull themselves free. A muffled voice was coming out of my pocket, so I started shouting over it. I'm talking about how this psychic will say whatever you want him to say to anyone if you pay him $20 in advance. This isn't the first time he's taken my money. I hoped I wouldn't have to say much more. The day before Jacqueline went to see the psychic, I'd called him and asked him to tell her everything was going to be okay, if she'd just follow the plan she already had in place. I thought telling her the truth about what I'd done would make me feel like a giant. Instead, once I said it, I felt weak, stupid, scared. I'm sorry, Jacqueline. I'm really sorry. I said. She was sitting there. I reached for her hand. She recoiled from me in a way I can't remember her ever doing before. You think I'm some kind of idiot? Jacqueline said. You think he's the reason I did it? He didn't make any decision for me. Neither did you. I'm not... I don't understand how you could think this had anything to do with that. Are you insane? No, I... I began. But from the look on her face, I could see there wasn't going to be any more discussion. I heard a muffled, Wait! coming from my jacket pocket. I left. Once I was outside the psychic's place, I stopped walking and took off my jacket. You guys okay? I asked. There was no answer. Hey, I said. I put my hand at the pocket seam so they could crawl out. Jamie Lou appeared in my hand. She was gray and dry now. Where's Jackie Gunner? I asked. He was bullying me, Jamie Lou said, her voice hoarse. She reminded me of a plucked leaf. So I killed him, she finished. What? I said. I felt the fear you feel when you've done something, anything that you can't take back. I bent over and shook the jacket a little. A tiny gray body of ash fell out. How could you? I yelled. You did? Jamie Lou said. What? I said. 
He wasn't going to be a person, Jamie Lou reminded me. It doesn't matter, I said. You can't just... I lowered Jamie Lou and Jackie Gunner's tiny body to the concrete. You said not to be a pushover, Jamie Lou squealed in her now coarse, broken voice. I could see she was almost out of time. I did it for you, Daddy. She was a tiny speck on the ground near her tiny brother. Both were almost invisible against the gray of the sidewalk. At the clinic, just before Jacqueline disappeared behind a white door to get her ultrasound, she looked back at me, sitting in the waiting room chair. She gave me this brave little half-smile. Her eyes were bright from hiding tears. She wanted to make this whole thing a little less terrible if she could. And she did. And no matter how hard I tried, I'd probably never know exactly how she felt. But she made me feel like, as she looked back at me, maybe it was all just what it was, and not the apocalypse. Do you hate me? Jamie Lou said. No, I said. So you loved us, Daddy? Jamie Lou said, hugging my shoelace. No, I said. I raised my foot, shook her off, and started to walk away, hoping she would not follow me. What are you doing? I turned and saw Jacqueline. She ran up to where I'd left Jamie Lou and picked her up along with the body of her brother. Hey, I said walking toward her, feeling trapped and wondering if I would ever escape any of this. I wanted to pretend it hadn't happened, but I was reminded by everything I felt. I'm sorry. I feel like... like there's only wrong answers. You don't care, Daddy, Jamie Lou said. Jackie Gunner, who'd been limp, was now moving very slowly in Jacqueline's hand. Thanks, Mommy, Jamie Lou said, snuggling against Jacqueline's thumb. I feel like you think I don't care, I continued. And I do care, but I was afraid that if I cared that way, you'd change your mind. It's all right, Jacqueline said to Jamie Lou. You've met already, I asked. Of course we have, Jacqueline said. What did you do to him? She asked, looking at Jackie Gunner. It wasn't my fault, I said. This had been my personal mantra for some time now. Of course it wasn't, Jacqueline replied. She took a step closer and stared me in the eye. Disappointment reigned. Then she looked at our unborn children withering away in her hand. It's fine. I'll handle it, she said, with only a small fraction of the sharpness she could summon. She turned and started walking. Can I help? I said. Maybe later, Jacqueline said, her voice tired but without malice. I watched her. Then I started in the opposite direction. I walked, hoping I'd see her smile again. At home I fell asleep on a pillow, stained with blood. 
The hospital where? I think I will go to the hospital. My arm is paining me. My father's voice. I heard him from some shallow corner of a quiet, hateful sleep. I imagined waking up somewhere different. I opened my eyes and was not somewhere different. I had no command over this place or the people in it. And yet, for the first time in more than three weeks, I felt the mark of the twelve-tongued god, an X followed by two vertical slashes burning on my back. My muse, my power, was awake again. What? I asked. Can you drive? My father asked. Okay, I said. I got ready. My father sat on a white plastic chair in the kitchen near the microwave and the hot plate. The only ways we had to cook. Beneath his leather sandals was a thin puddle of water that had leaked. As it did every day, from the shower in the adjacent bathroom. It was a basement. Dark mold had to be attacked with bleach regularly. But it never died. I hated this place we lived in and had for a very long time. My father scooped oatmeal into a bowl. Arm pain can be linked to other problems, he said. I tried very carefully to tie my shoes. Better for you to drive. This was all long before we knew of the cancer nesting in his bones. You'll be fine, I said. I know, but just in case, he finished through a mouthful of oatmeal. While I waited for him to eat, I grabbed the latest issue of a small journal of stories and poems called Rabid Bird and one of my notebooks. The twelve-tongued god beckoned in the form of the heat I felt on my back, and while I waited for my father to finish his oatmeal, I tried, finally, to write. I scribbled and felt the free feeling of fire in my bones. Transported into a world where I had command and anything was possible— all right, let's go, my father said too quickly. I closed my notebook and followed him outside. The drive was long and tired. My father explained to me what the doctors had told him when he'd called earlier. Essentially, he was now old enough that anything could be a big deal. They told him where to go while his normal hospital underwent renovations. We crossed the bridge. There was a spot pretty close. My father got out of the car and went into the hospital. I'll find you, I said. I straightened the car out, then fed the meter. I walked toward the entrance, thinking, Remember this, the first time you drove a parent to a hospital. What are you looking for? said a woman who I hoped knew I was already lost and scared. She stood in front of me in purple scrubs and colorful nurse-type shoes. Her brown hair was spun into something that let everyone know she was very busy and hadn't slept in a long time. The tone of her voice, spiced with the Bronx, said I was one of many inconveniences in her life. I'm looking for my dad. He just came through here a second ago. Is that all? She tapped her clipboard with a pen. What department? 
I had no idea what department my father was looking for, so I told her the truth about that. Well, I don't know how you don't know, but... She was about to take great pleasure in telling me that I was in this situation due to my own incompetence, and that even though she could not help me, she herself was very competent. I walked away from her before she could finish. Down the first hallway and to the left was a door that looked like the main lobby of a hotel. At the front desk was a computer and two empty seats. A woman in a suit and badge was pacing back and forth in front of the desk. Hi, I'm looking for my dad, I said. Well, there's a whole lot of dads in this place, the security guard said. He probably just came by asking questions, too. Black guy. I'm sure he just came down this way. Check an emergency. That's where I've been sending everybody who doesn't know where the heck they're going. She paused so I could be certain she was ridiculing me. You're going to go down this hall and make a left the first chance you get. You'll be in radiology, then walk straight through there and make another left, and you'll basically be there. You'll see. Thanks so much, I said. Soon I was staring at a small entryway sign that read Radiology 1. In the hall there was an extremely old man in a wheelchair. He groaned steadily. His white skin looked stretched and spotty. It seemed someone had forgotten him, or maybe was using him to prop open the door. There were so many tubes going in and coming out of him that I couldn't imagine where they began or ended. I walked past quickly. Farther down the same hall, a black guy in a wheelchair stared in my direction with eyes so empty I thought they might suck something out of me. I made a left and then saw a pair of double doors. A lot of healthy, able-bodied people talk about how much they hate the hospital. I've said it too, I guess. White coats and scrubs power-walked in all directions. To my right was a family of six or seven. I imagined them Italian. It seemed they were waiting on news that everyone already knew was going to be bad. They clung to one another. They pointed frustrated looks at their shoes. Dad, I said as I stepped through the double doors. My father looked at me, then returned to arguing with an attendant seated behind a lectern in the corner of the emergency room. I called and was told I could meet with someone since my doctor isn't in. And now I'm here, and they are telling me to wait in the emergency room. They told me to come right away. My father was speaking the way he did to a rude waiter or a careless cashier. I'm sorry, sir. I don't know who you called. Things are a little hectic today. Please sign the sheet, said the attendant. I have. My father did one of his I'm smarter than you laughs. Already signed. Then, please wait like everybody else. It was unseemly for anyone who wasn't about to die right that second to make any kind of scene in the emergency room, is what he was trying to say. Dad, I said, just wait. My father stopped and looked visibly calmer. He said, I gripped my notebook and the journal. I felt the mark tingle on my back. Can you call again? I asked. I already have. Dr. Coppin isn't in, 
and now they don't know how to direct me to another doctor. Imagine. I'll go back and see if I can find some kind of directory, I said. What I wanted to do was sit and reread a story called Free Barabbas from the latest issue of Rabid Bird. It was pretty good, the story. I was especially interested in it because it had won a contest I had also entered. I'd received an email saying that though they'd loved my submission, does anybody want a kitten? I was still a loser. My story was about a family and all the things that happened to them and their new kitten. Sometimes the kitten is hiding under the new bed, sometimes the kitten is sick, other times it's not, and the family just appreciates its furry innocence. At one point the kitten runs away, and the family thinks their new home will never feel the same again. The winning story concerned a guy who in his own roundabout way confronts his past through a series of events in his old neighborhood. It wasn't so much what it was about, but rather the way the narrator was so funny and so mean and somehow so honest that made it an awesome story, the kind you don't forget. It also happened to be nothing like anything I could ever write. In Does Anybody Want a Kitten? The kitten eventually comes back, but she's pregnant. The sick feeling growing in my throat matched the burning on my back. It was a warning. My time was running out. The twelve-tongued God had promised me I would make our lives better. That I could use the power it had granted me to change things. It wouldn't matter what I did if my father wasn't there to see what I'd done. I got up. I left my father sitting in his brown coat with his hands on his lap. I hoped he wouldn't ask me where I was going. He said nothing. Through the double doors, the eyes of the Italian family jumped up at me. Their eyes held something I would normally take as a look of pity, but then and there, I'm not sure what it was. I walked back through radiology. The black guy was still there, alone. The other man, the one strangled by tubes and age, was also still there, but now he was wearing a Mets cap. I felt certain someone was using him as a hat rack. In the front lobby, the security guard looked nervous, then tough when I approached. Is there maybe a directory kind of person, or someone who can help me find which department I'm supposed to be in? I asked. I pointed to the empty chairs behind the lobby desk. Is someone going to be sitting in one of those chairs soon? Not today. Nobody's coming. But if you don't know the department you need, then you probably wouldn't get much help anyway. When people come in and are trying to figure out where to go, who do they usually speak to? My dad called and spoke to someone who told him to come in. But now that we're here, we can't figure out where to go. He normally goes to Riverhead, but they transferred him here. Who did he speak to? He says her name was Martha. The security guard almost smiled. Just Martha? Yes. I'm just wondering... If we call this hospital, who are the people we would speak to? Who would help us? There's a lot of phones in this hospital. You're better off going to the emergency room. The security lady adjusted her pants and made a sound. Thanks so much, I said, and walked back the way I came. 
The twelve on my back burned. I would have to write in the emergency room. I sat next to my father. I quickly explained that in terms of guidance, this hospital was not going to help us. My father shook his head and muttered something about how this would never happen at his usual hospital. I opened my notebook. Quietly, I prayed to the twelve-tongued God. I looked around. Across from us was someone so old they didn't really have a gender anymore, and a Hispanic woman about my father's age. I noticed a puddle beneath her seat. I didn't know what the liquid was. Seeing it in the emergency room made me feel queasy. It could have been water. What are you writing? My father asked. I looked up from my notebook. I don't know, I said, which was the truest thing anyone had ever said. It was still new for me to write in front of my parents or anyone. It felt like announcing I was running for some huge office as a Green Party candidate. Well, what is it about? My father turned toward me and winced as he did. You write a lot now. What do you write about? His curiosity stunned me. I also really had no idea how to answer. What I could never tell my father was that I'd given myself to the twelve-tongued God. It had happened many years before. We'd been in a house that the bank would soon want back. The nights were dark because the gas and electric company had decided enough was enough. I'd learned that many of the things I loved, the comforts that made me feel good about myself, could disappear very slowly, and also, suddenly. I'd learned to hate, then. To hate others for having things. To hate myself for not. One day, like an angel, the twelve-tongued god emerged from the midnight black around me, as mysterious and vital as my own breath. I can give you new eyes, eyes that will work, that won't cry. I can put your hurt to use, Twelve Tongue said. I can give you what you want. After every other word, it pulled off a mask to reveal yet another beautiful new face. Its voice sounded like every voice I'd ever heard speaking at once. I can give you the power to be anywhere to heal the world, to own time, to turn lies to truth, to make day into night and night into day. I nodded viciously. You will have the power to change everything, to make the life you want. What do I have to do? I asked. You are not yet ready, said the twelve-tongued god, revealing a new mask one that wore a deep frown and jubilant eyes. Then it disappeared. I waited. After we lost the house, we spent a year cramped into a small apartment. Then we were displaced again. The night I saw another pink eviction notice, I prayed to that mysterious being that had found me those years before. Twelve Tongue appeared again in the basement we called a home. It smiled and frowned and laughed and cried. It stood in front of me. I watched it closely. As if to impress me, it winked, 
and where before there had been a hot plate, now there was a stainless steel oven in range. The god laughed and the hot plate was back, the range gone. I begged on my knees for its power. Serve me, and you will live in a different world forever. I'll do anything, I said. I could feel the skin on my back beginning to sear. I could smell my own burn. Then prove it. The twelve-tongued god opened its mouth and reached a hand in. From its throat, it pulled out what looked like a human hand, but was actually the hilt to a sharp blade, the edge growing from the hand's middle finger. Please, I begged. The god watched me closely. The face it wore had an insane smile and drowning eyes. It held the knife and stared at me. Then it stuck its tongue out and quickly cut it off. I watched its bleeding mouth. For Eve, said the twelve-tongued god, a new tongue growing in its mouth. You, Eva, be the same. Please, I begged again. The god handed me the blade. I stuck my tongue out and placed the sharp edge near my bottom teeth. I pulled up and screamed. My tongue fell, and the twelve-tongued god reached down and snatched it before it could hit the floor. The pact is made, the twelve-tongued god said, and it stuffed its own newly cut tongue into my mouth. I wish I could share what it was like to feel the new tongue weaving into my flesh. I felt the Roman twelve brand into my back. Suddenly I could see in the dark. Day became night. I felt free. Thank you, I said. We'll see, the twelve-tongued god said as it popped my old tongue into its mouth and chewed. Then it disappeared. That night I wrote my first story. I saw I was chained to the new power. I had to stay with the story, work it harder and harder until it was something greater than I could have imagined. From that day forward I prayed to Twelve Tongue every night and every morning, asking for more tongues, for sharper tongues. When I didn't write, my brand pulsed and ached. When I wrote badly, it screamed fiery chords. But then when I made sentences that lived, it quieted, and I could feel my ability growing. Still I craved more tongues, new worlds to live in, and more power to change the one I was in now. I loved it. It was very lonely. A nurse called out sounds that were both understood as her attempt to pronounce our last name. What kind of stories do you write? My father asked again. It's about a guy who's hurt, I guess, I answered. Oh, that could be interesting, my father said. This was the most we'd ever discussed my writing. I don't know, I said. Someone attempted to call our name again. My father looked at me, then got up. He left his long coat on the seat beside me. I scooped the mess of brown cloth onto my lap. I'll wait here, I said. 
My father didn't say anything before he disappeared through the double doors. I exhaled. I closed my notebook and sat back in the emergency room chair. I pressed my eyes shut. I could hear the quiet chatter of the healthy and sick. After a while, I opened my eyes. A couple came in supporting each other with interlocking elbows. I couldn't tell the afflicted from the crutch. They found a seat in the room's corner near the attendant and his lectern. Did you ever find your mother? The nurse I'd seen when I'd first entered the hospital was standing in front of me. I remembered her color-splashed scrubs and shoes. It was my dad, but yeah, I said. The nurse smiled. Was it? What if it was your mother? The nurse said. She winked once with her left eye. Then she winked again. I looked down. My father's coat was gone. In its place was a black coat with a flourish of black sequins. It smelled lightly of a fruity perfume. No, I said. It's my father. It's my father I'm waiting for. Fine, said the nurse. The Bronx accent waned, and a voice that could be anything took its place. At least you know that much. I was again holding a brown trench coat that smelled like talcum powder and sweat. I stared at the twelve-tongued god, overjoyed and afraid as usual. Why now? I asked. Why now? I wanted to yell, but didn't. Don't be silly, said the twelve-tongued god. She put her stethoscope in her ears, reached over my shoulder, and pulled my shirt up. She pressed cold metal on my mark. Since I'd first gotten it, the mark had grown and evolved. Around the twelve was a dark mural of shadow figures and words I couldn't understand. You're the one who's neglected me. I wasn't even sure it was you. The twelve-tongued god smoothed my shirt back down, then pinched my cheek. I've been trying, I said. My fists were clenched. Really? said the twelve-tongued god. She reached down and unclenched my fists. Are you really trying? You have no right to. I am the right to, the twelve-tongued god said. Aren't I the one who made you something? Or maybe you'd rather cook on a hot plate for the rest of your life. No, I said. I was on the verge of tears. The twelve-tongued god sighed deeply. I was, um, a burning pulled at the corners of my eyes. It's not easy for me. I need more from you. I need more tongues. I'm not good enough yet. I want to go all the way. Then go all the way, the twelve-tongued god said to me. Make what you want to see. The twelve-tongued god reached down and kissed me on the forehead. Really? said the twelve-tongued god. I focused. I imagined what I wanted and what should be. And as I did, I saw that actually, no, the twelve-tongued god hadn't kissed me on the forehead. That didn't happen. Instead, 
She grabbed me by the face and pressed a long, hard lick up my neck, stopping at my ear. It felt warm and wet, like so many good things. My twelve glowed and pulsed. Don't be boring, the god said as she started to leave. I wanted to ask, when will I be a winner? And though the thought never reached my throat, the twelve-tongued god turned to me just before disappearing through the double doors and said, When you win something. I felt the power of the twelve-tongued god spinning in my gut, looking for a place to go. I got up carrying my father's coat in my arms. I needed to feed the meter. I wanted to check in with my father, but realized he'd left his cell phone in the jacket. I sighed. Then I remembered that there were people around me who might not see their loved ones ever again. I walked out through the double doors. The Italian family was still there, though I could tell that since I'd seen them last, they'd either heard the terrible news they'd been anticipating, or that the lack of any news at all had finally broken them. One woman in the family was crying into another's chest, while a younger man rubbed both of their shoulder blades. I slipped by them quickly. If there was a ticket, it would be my fault. The old men in radiology were as forgotten as ever. I made a point of noticing the old white guy exploding with tubes and the empty-looking black man because I felt like their not giving me anything meant I was to forget them, and I did not want to forget them yet. The security guard who took pleasure in not helping me was adjusting her belt and strolling along a tiny circle. Outside, it was alive and sunny in stark contrast to the hospital, which was bright but dead. There were people walking around everywhere. None of them had any idea that maybe my father was sick and damaged. I swapped the old ticket for a new one. Adulthood is paying the meter on time, I thought. I walked back toward the emergency room. Inside, the security guard was now arguing with a woman in a tight suit who seemed to want to make a show of things. I was happy to see angry people. Back in radiology, the old men were still dying. I continued to the emergency room. On the way, the colorful nurse walked by. She yawned into her clipboard, then looked at a watch on her wrist. I tried and failed to make eye contact. The Italian family was with a doctor now. They huddled around him, as if he were a quarterback explaining the face of the next down. I stood away from them. Nurses and doctors rushed around, trying to help when, really, what could they do? From the looks of things, that's what the doctor was telling the family. He wasn't a miracle worker despite the white coat and the machines. Then, suddenly, he rose up out of the huddle and pointed at me. He said, That young man there can end your suffering. He is putting you through this. Maybe for no reason at all. He doesn't know why, and he doesn't even have the heart to end it. He's just going to... I pretended I didn't hear the doctor say anything and continued back into the emergency room. I felt Twelve Tongue's hand like hot oil washing over my back. I wanted to tell the family that they mattered and weren't just grim decor. I didn't know how to tell them that, so I sat down and opened my notebook and tried to direct the fear and fire I felt in my body onto the page. 
I looked up from the notebook. Another older woman was coming in with what had to be her husband. They'd been together so long, they were basically twins. The same hunchbacks and thick glasses and drooping, tired faces. She used a blue rolling walker. I tried to ignore the couple and think. The old lady with the walker told the woman at the information window she'd been feeling very faint for the last three days. I could see that she and her husband were pretending they didn't know the faintness was her soul stretching out before a great marathon. Is the family of... I heard something like my last name over the screeching PA system and decided it must be my turn to speak with the lady at the information window. Hi. I told her my name and that I was the son. I smiled at the old couple. That was my way of pretending with them. Do you have your father's insurance information? The woman at the window asked. I don't, I said. I can go find him and get it, I added quickly. But I'm not sure where he is exactly. He should be in bed fifteen, the woman said. Just down the hall. Fifteen? I asked. Like, he's in an actual bed? I could no longer pretend I wasn't afraid. Bed fifteen, she repeated. As I passed the Italian family, I put my notebook, the journal, and my father's coat down and did a cartwheel to show them that kind of thing was still possible. They looked up at me, unamused. Then they returned to their sorrowful hugs and mutterings. I picked my stuff back up. I found my father wearing a dotted hospital gown. He'd spent most of his life in a tie. We stared at each other for a while. There were beeping sounds everywhere. He was carving out the last of a cup of jello. They gave you food? I asked. Well, my father said, I was hungry. So what's happening? I need your insurance stuff. My father asked me to find his pants, which were somewhere beneath his hospital bed. I pulled two cards from his wallet and waited for him to answer me. I'm still waiting for the... Well, there she is now. The colorful nurse trotted toward us in a way that made me uneasy. She rubbed the back of my neck as she walked by me. Is this your son? The twelve-tongued god said to my father. Yes. Can't you tell by how handsome he is? I can, I can, said the twelve-tongued god. She winked at me and I saw diminished blood cells, emaciation, chemotherapy, hair loss, diapers, more chemotherapy, fading fathers and heart-sick sons grabbing, grabbing with weak hands for anything. Words that tried to make something pretty out of shit. You must be wondering what's going on, the god continued. We are, my father said. He laughed weakly. Okay. It looks like... The twelve-tongued god seemed to be looking at her clipboard, but she peered over the edge. Nothing is more boring than a happy ending, her eyes said. I stared back and tried not to flinch from the gaze of my creator. I took a deep breath. Your blood pressure was a little higher than we'd like, so we checked that out, but other than that, everything looks great. 
After you give them your information, you'll be free to go.